more than brothers. I was 72 years old. For over 50 years, I had the same nightmares. I wake up in cold sweats, often with tears running down my cheeks to my sweat-soaked pillow. I couldn't forget the last battle and the friend I lost to a Japanese shell. In the late 1930s, I had joined the Civilian Conservation Corps at the age of 18. The second of seven children, a six-foot-two-inch lanky boy from the Deep South, I wanted to help my family after the death of my father. Four years later, a veteran and survivor of Roy, Namur, Saipan, and Tinian, I found myself basking in the sun on the Hawaiian Islands at Maui with my unit, the 2nd Battalion, 24th Regiment of the Fort Marine Division. I was a machine gun gunner, first squad. My best friend was Richard, a broad-shouldered boy about an inch taller and a year older than me, who came from a town in the southern part of New York State. We did everything together. We had been in Maui nearly three months. We played softball and went on trips to the towns of Kahulai, but most of our time was spent in the seemingly endless boredom of marching, training, and more training, preparing for our next objective. Then all the boat rides, ball games, sunbathing, and training came to an end. We were boarding transport to once again become a part of war. And we had no idea where our ships were taking us. Our destination turned out to be a sulfur-smelling volcanic island called Iwa Jima. This island was near the end of the Napo Shoto, a chain of islands in the South Pacific, 750 miles from Tokyo. 23,000 Japanese soldiers and sailors occupied it. On D-Day, we left the safety of our transports and boarded the landing craft around 1,700 hours. We were to come in on the second wave, a section of the beach designated Yellow Beach would be our landing zone. We were to take and hold this pork chop shaped island in an emergency landing field for U.S. bombers and their fighter escorts returning from raids on Japan. Leaving the landing crest, we struggled to make our way across the beach. Trying to walk in the black volcanic sand was like trying to walk inside an hourglass. The sand shifted constantly beneath our feet. We made little progress because of the debris, the mines, and the constant fire from the enemy. We also had the unpleasant task of wadding through our fallen comrades. We finally arrived at the crest of the beach and went across Motoyama Airfield Number 1. We set up our guns and prepared to fly, staying there for what seemed an eternity. My buddy Richards, who had been in sick bay aboard the transport suffering from a high fever finally joined me on the third day. I felt a lot better with him by my side. Our gun was set up halfway between two airfields near a place called Charlie Dog Ridge. We were under constant fire from snipers, small arms and machine guns, plus a never ending stream of shells came from the dreaded mortars which were hidden in the jagged volcanic rock 
of this hell the brass caught and objected. Hours passed as Richard watched my back and I watched his brothers in arms. We depend on each other totally. As we repositioned our guns in what we believed to be a safer place, a Japanese shell suddenly exploded near our crater. Many were killed or wounded, including our ammo carriers and some of our riflemen. I was one of the injured, it seems like hours, but it was only a few minutes until the angels of the battlefield, the Navy corpsmen, were helping me. As the stretcher bearer picked me up and carried me out, I kept reaching for my buddy. I did not want to leave him alone. We had only gone a few yards when we were hit by another shell. One of the bearers was killed instantly, the other severely wounded, and I was hit for the second time. I lay there all night in the warm volcanic sand, worrying about Richards, trying to ignore the pain from my wounds. Sometimes during the night, I lost consciousness. The next morning, I was picked up and taken to the aid station on the beach. They told me I was the only one to survive the explosion. It was the last thing I remember about those three awful days. I woke up abroad a hospital ship headed for Guam. There, I was placed in a body cast and flown to the United States. Before and after my surgeries, I mourned Richards. I kept saying to myself, I should have been the one who stayed behind. I was discharged in December 1945 and went back home to Georgia to be with my family. I had married that August while on leave and over the next 50 years helped raise three sons and a daughter. My life was full as a man could have asked for it, yet there was a hollow place in my heart that could not be filled. Not a day went by that I did not think of my best buddy till on the island, still on the island, and sometimes there were those awful dreams. In 1995, I attended a Veterans of Iowa Jima reunion in Atlanta. At that reunion, I was asked to join several veteran, veteran groups. After talking with other vets, I finally wrote my name on a few different sign-up sheets. I, a copy of one of these pages ended up in the hands of a retired police detective in Endicott, New York, who immediately recognized my name. And the detective called me the very next day. I answered the phone and the man said, Ask Newton for the first time in 50 years. Each of us heard a familiar voice, a voice was both thought we never heard or hear again. The voice belonged to two Marines who had gone through the hell of war and who had each been told that his best buddy had been killed in action on that bloody island. To this day, we continue to phone, write, and visit each other. The bad dreams are gone, the empty place filled. We are now, as then, closer than brothers. Uh, written in by William C. Newton, as told by Bill Newton Jr. From Chicken Soup for the Veteran Soul, New York bestseller. Seller. Chicken Soup for the Soul, The Book of Miracles, Everyday Miracles. William Cater, she yells, Where 
where there is great love, there are always miracles. Where there is great love, there are always miracles. At a glance, I thought it said, where are all the miracles? <laughs> where there is great love, there are always miracles. The sun rises. An exhausted woman weeps with joy as her screaming newborn is laid across her breast. A father beams as his baby girl takes his first steps. And parents cry with gratefulness when the doctor pronounces their son in full remission. A pony rises itself on wobbly newborn legs. A spider fashions this artistry web bejeweled in drops of dew. The artist creates. Clouds fill unto the rain. There much need a shower unto the earth. Flowers stretch and yawn and reach their faces upward in praises to God. By carrying away small stones, a man manages to move a mountain. In the midst of dreaming, a grieving soul embraces a long lost one, loved one. A parent who lost a child feels joy again and a first day without tears. A white hand claps a black hand and we hear, I understand. <clears throat> a wrinkled hand holds a smooth little hand. <clears throat> Let me help you. A small child fills an empty space in an elderly neighbor's day. An unbelieving believer tells a believer, you know what? What you said makes sense to me. An old man smiles and looks at the corner of his room where a band of angels have come to take him home. The sun sets, everyday miracles, don't let them pass by, You're, you unnoticed, by Beverly F. Walker. And now our next story, the parable of the purse. In Luke 15:9 said, and then she finds it. She calls her friends and neighbors together and say, rejoice with me, I have found my lost coin." Luke 15:9. It shivered in the distance, a beacon, a beacon for weary travelers. Kathy and I were grateful to have made it out of the urban jungle, unscatched, and drove slowly towards the oasis, beckoning to us in the haze, Dunkin' Donuts. Minutes later, we were covered in white powder, thankful we had both up to wear light colors that day. With heads spinning high on sugar, we ordered coffees to go. They had a special on the supersized plastic mug, free refills for a year, and after a bit of maneuvering, it was forever fixed to my dashboard. Head filled with thoughts of the next donut stop, wondering if the coffee would taste better because it was free. I steered my silver Ford Fiesta back onto the interstate, heading west toward Indiana to our friend's house, our final destination of the day. The next two hours went quickly until full bladders and empty gas tank made it necessary to stop once again. I'll get this one, I said eager to show off my newly minted credit card. Reaching to run into the back seat, I grabbed for my purse, but it wasn't there. I knew my light brown leather sachet could easily slip under the seat, so I got out and rummaged around. I wasn't worried, yet we hadn't stopped anywhere, so no one could have taken it, and I paid for my plastic cup coffee mug, so I knew I had it then. But after unearthing candy wrappers, old newspapers, and a half of New York City subway map, 
I remember with all the fuss getting my new coffee mug centered on the dashboard, I had left my purse on the roof of the car in the Dunkin' Donuts parking lot in New York City backyard. I don't know why I was surprised when it wasn't still there. Then I panicked, sure that my credit cards had already been maxed out, but something told me to call the Dunkin' Donuts just in case. Oh, thank goodness, the clerk said when I called, we were going through your wallet trying to find a way to get in touch with you. Someone found your purse lying in the parking lot and turned it in. Refusing any kind of reward, the shop owner express mailed it to our friend's home. It arrived the next morning with only postage money missing. A few years later, on a snowy mountain, Minnesota winter night, in the middle of downtown Minneapolis, my car's low gas light was blinking red and I knew I had to stop to or risk walking home. I switched purses by this time to something smaller with a strap so I could always keep it with me. I filled up, made sure my purse was securely around my neck and drove home. But when I got out of the car, my purse wasn't there. Deja vu. A single leather strap wove itself in and out of my dark green scarf like a vine around a tree. But there was no purse attached to the other end. I searched repeatedly under, around, and between the seats until my fingers were frozen and the knees of my jeans soaked through from kneeling in the slush. Had I lost my purse again? Knowing my good fortune might not repeat itself, I called the credit card company and my bank to freeze my accounts. But I didn't have I didn't have bothered. The next morning I got a call. It's this heatish Grosh. We found your purse lying in the snowbank. It seemed I had closed my car door and my purse hanging outside. It had dragged along through the snow until the strap broke until everything was there and the finder refused to accept any payment. I will always be grateful to those good Samaritans for the reminder that miracles don't always have to be bigger than life. They can be the little things that hit you unexpectedly and have a happy ending. I'm trying to recognize the small miracles of daily life and to keep track of my purse. Haiti H. Grosh. Uh, there was once a business guy that had a, he opt a portfolio, uh, one of these uh, timekeeping journals that looked like a Bible was so big. And he went to seminars and he would go to work. And he had big dreams of uh, making it in real estate and stocks and bonds and insurance. And he kept going to these uh, all day timekeeping uh, strategies and uh, bought their portfolio and then the portfolio you they, they would put your money and all your credit cards and everything inside this will look like a big book like a Bible binder uh, this young executive had gone and uh, he was working nights burning the, the candle on both ends and one day he got out of that seminar put the, the binder on top of his car got in there and, and rushed to the next appointment uh, on his little fast, super-duper uh, car. And lo and behold, he got on the freeway and he noticed that something was flapping on the uh, by the wheel well. He thought maybe a piece of paper or a bag had caught on there, you know, and he, and he looked closely 
and it looked like a book that was stuck to the side of the wheel well going down the freeway flapping pulled over it so happens that it was his binder he had, he had got caught it fell off the roof and he got caught on the chrome of the car the back wheel well and it didn't and it had money it had all credit cards and his license and it didn't splatter all over the freeway and that was me that happened to me so thank you god for watching thank you angels so I looked at what were the chances of that big old binder falling off and hitting just at the right time, the very tight chrome piece that was up against the wheel well and snug right in there and, and then flap. It was a miracle, I tell you. A very good. Thank you, Father. Thank you, God, for allowing me to keep my... Greetings. Welcome to today's reading from Chicken Soup, The Recovering Soul. Let's pray. God, grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change, the courage to change the things I can, and the wisdom to know the difference. Remember, a grant is free. You don't have to pay it back. It's from heaven. To keep it, you got to be grateful. Count your blessings. Oh, reading from Chicken Soup Recovering Soul. Built it and they will come. Built it. In the 10 years from 1989 to 1999, I went through alcohol treatment four times. One at the Betty Ford Center, twice at Serenity Nose, and finally at the Sierra Tucson Treatment Center. All fine centers, they gave me everything I needed to know about battling chemical dependence. And I work hard at recovery. Each month long session in rehab toughened my resolve to make it to overcome my terrible disease. But somehow each time I failed. After rehab, visit number four, the one at Sierra Tucson, things in my life improve in many ways. But eventually, and what seemed like inevitably, I began drinking again. This time, however, I embarked on a spiraling journey downward that culminated in my standing in front of a plate glass window in the penthouse suite of a luxury hotel and seriously contemplating whether I should jump. My story starts in 1956, the year I was born. My parents were married, but not to each other. I was the product of an affair that broke up two families and earned me the deep and often violent resentment of all my half-siblings. My father never married my mother, and my mother and I struggled financially the whole time that I lived at home. To say that my childhood was dysfunctional is an understatement. The lasting two legacies of my upbringing were a lifelong struggle with depression and my core belief that material success is the most important thing in life and the key to happiness. This belief contributed to my reoccurring relapses since, oddly enough, drinking had no consequences for my professionality. Drinking had no consequences for me professionally. I was a highly successful attorney, and although my personal life was a mess, 
I was a material success and that I believed was what I what mattered. My slide to the brink began nine months after my stay at Sierra Tucson. Even though things in the surface seemed good, I was widely successful in my career and my son was planning to come to live with me for high school. Deep inside myself, I was still depressed. Drinking helped me to deal with my depression in two ways. Either I would drink myself into a stupor and stay in my house, finally numb to my internal pain, or I would go out seeking distraction. Visiting nightclubs, casinos, and bars in the world of high rolling gambling and continuous drinking. This time I choose to seek excitement. I checked into the penthouse suite of a Nevada casino and proceeded to drink nonstop for two weeks. I didn't eat and hardly slept. I drank and gambled and caroused. Stuck in high gear, I felt like king of the world. If my high started to slip, I drank some more. Finally, my body couldn't take it anymore at this abuse when I couldn't even hold down any liquor. I crashed. I remember sitting in a bathrobe on the leather couch of the safari suite, emotionally spent, spiritually bankrupt, and disgusted with myself in every way possible. It was sunset, and I was looking out the window at the mountains in the distance. Sunk in despair, the question that kept chasing itself through my head was, should I end it? Should I? Should I end it? I stood up and walked over to the window. It was heavy plate glass window, and in order to jump, I would have to break the glass first. I turned and saw a trio of bronze statues of naked women by the jacuzzi. That would work. I picked one up in my arms and turned back to the window. I stood staring down, weighing whether I would be better to my family alive or dead. It was the thought of my family, of my son Charlie, that made me put the statue down and walk back to the couch to consider the situation more carefully. Collapsing on the leather seat, I sat for a few minutes thinking of Charlie. I was physically sick and more desperate in my spirit than I had ever been in my life. Night had fallen and I was enveloped in darkness inside and out. Suddenly, a light came on the inside of me. In the next moment, I felt a wave of energy beginning in my head. It moved down, resounding in my chest, and then radiated down the length of my body. I remember the feeling of relief of a sensation of well-being began to spread inside of me. It was such a startling contrast to everything I had been feeling just a minute before. Then the clear thought came to me. I'm not ready to die. This is not what I am supposed to do. Not at all. I knew I had a purpose of being here, and for that, I wanted to get better. Although I felt lifted up with this new idea, my body was still in terrible shape. I literally didn't have the strength to make all the phone calls necessary to get me to a rehab center. I rolled over on the couch and picked up the phone. I called the head of the casino and told him, I need your help. I'm either going out your front door or I'm going out of your 18th floor window. I need you to arrange for me to enter treatment now. I asked him to call Sierra Tucson. With great difficulty, I managed to take a shower, dress, got in the limo, and caught a plane to Arizona en route 
My body literally shut down, and when I finally reached Sierra Tucson, they rolled me out in a gurney. It took about 10 days for my body to recover from the poison I had put it through. I didn't speak and hardly remember anything about the miserable time. Yet, as soon as I was finished being sick, I noticed immediately that my sense of well-being was back. I also noticed a feeling of fearlessness inside of me. All my life, I had lived with fear. Fear of losing what I had, of losing relationships, but now it was gone. I thought, I should be dead. I lost everything, but I'm here. There's nothing left to fear because I can get through these things. I am a stronger person now. It sounded odd, but I had to get sick before I could get well. Although I was back at Sierra Tucson, things were very difficult this time. Every other time I had been through rehab, I had been treated for chemical dependency. This time, I was admitted to the trauma unit. My counselor told me, we know you know all about treatment for chemical dependency. This time, we are going to deal with your family of origin issues. We are going to address your depression. He felt that all of the alcohol treatment in the world wouldn't help me until I addressed the underlying cause for my alcoholism. This approach, combined with the new feeling of spiritual energy I experienced inside of me, worked. Yet, when I left Sierra Tucson 32 days later, I knew that the only way I was going to be successful in my recovery was, one, to become more involved in the recovery community, and two, to do something in my life that made me happy. Again, I knew that the only way I was going to be successful in recovery was, number one, to be actively involved in the recovery movement, and two, to do something in my life that gave me happiness. When I got home, I enrolled in California State University Alcohol and Other Drug Studies Certification Program to better understand the mechanics of addiction and recovery. One day, as I sat listening in class, I began to have a familiar sensation. Out of the blue, I experienced a wave of energy that started in my head and radiated down the length of my body. And thought accompanying this energy was, I need to open a treatment center. I need to open a treatment center. That excitement was electric inside me. I knew that I was going to create the most advanced, innovative, cutting-edge, multidisciplinary recovery center to treat people with the same disease I had. In that moment, the Bayside Marine Recovery Center was born in my mind. It didn't matter that I didn't know how to build a treatment center or that I wasn't a professional counselor. I knew what they had taught me in AA was true. If I'm going to keep what I got, I need to give it away. Since that day, the creation of Bedside Marine has become the focus of my life. I am involved in every aspect of the process from construction to landscaping to staff selection. I still successfully practice law, though now as a mediator. Even more important, I have no desire to drink whatsoever. My days are filled with enthusiasm, purpose, and a sense of significance. I have never felt so connected to a higher power. In the past, no matter how much money I made, I never felt this way. The remarkable way 
things have fallen into place make it clear. The Bayside Marine is based being created through me to start the whole construction process has been remarkably smooth. What normally would have taken two years have been completed in six months. And when I began contacting top professionals in the field to ask them to join Bayside Marine staff, the response was always the same. This opportunity is what I've been waiting for all my life. So many wonderful people have left long-standing positions to work at the center. On June 2004, I received my certification from the Alcohol and Drug Studies Program, fulfilling my goal to better understand my disease and myself. In addition, it has made me a better administrator for the program offered at the center that was born of my transformation. Bayside Marine, a place to heal and turn lives around, named for the center's idyllic location next to the San Francisco Bay in beautiful Marine County. <clears throat> I opened its doors two weeks later. Within one month, it was full. <clears throat> I went back to Sierra Tucson recently, but not on a gurney and not as a patient. I wasn't greeted by the detox staff or shown to my room. Instead, I was greeted with hugs and a big sign saying, Welcome, Perry. Everyone told me how proud they were of what I'd done. This time, I was there because I had meetings scheduled with the senior staff of Sierra Tucson to talk about collaborating relationships with Bayside Marine. To top things off, Charlie is coming this summer, and I'll be there to spend lots of time with him. I remember standing at the hotel window wondering if life was worth living. Now I know. By Perry V. Litchfield. Wow, what a story. God bless the power of God that comes through us, that gives us that we're here to do something great, and God will help us. Maybe just smile at people for me. from Chicken Soup for the Soul, Stretch Management 101. Uh, Winston Churchill said, I'm always ready to learn, although I do not always like being taught. Have you had days when Murphy's Law was in full swing? Well, this was one of them. I had to be in Manhattan, which is an ordeal in itself, a flat tire, a jackknife tractor trailer on the highway, a ticket by the police officer who saw red when I saw yellow. You get the picture? By noontime, I was a candidate for the funny farm. When I feel stressed out, I go to an AA meeting. Through my involvement in treatment alcoholics, I knew this was a group of people who had used alcohol to escape stress. I reasoned that since they were now sober, they must have sound, found new ways to cope with it, and I concluded the principles and practice of alcoholic anonymous were the key. When I finally reached Manhattan, I found several noontime AA meetings within a radius of a few blocks and chose one. A young woman was the speaker. She had begun drinking at 13, 
added marijuana at 14 and a variety of drugs after that. Eventually, she began selling herself to produce drugs. At 26, someone got her into Alcoholics Anonymous, and she was now nine years sober, happy, working in a and in a good relationship. Her story was no different than the many others I had heard. So far, no relief for my misery. Then she said, Oh, there is one more thing I must tell you before I finish. I am a rabbit football fan. The New York Jets are in my team, and I'll never miss a game. One weekend, I had to be out of town, so I asked a friend to record the game for me on her VCR. When I returned, she gave me the videotape and said, by the way, the Jets won. I started watching the tape and things were just terrible. The Jets were losing badly. At halftime, my team was 20 points behind. Under the other circumstances, I would have been a nervous wreck, pacing the floor, fighting my fingernails, and raiding the refrigerator. But not this time. I was perfectly calm. I knew they were going to win. Ever since I came to AA and made a conscious decision to turn my life over to God, I know that I turned out good in the end. So even if I am 20 points behind at halftime, I don't lose my bearings. I'll turn out all right. I knew then why I was at the meeting. This young woman not only eliminated all the agitation engendered by Murphy's Law that day, but also provided with me with a powerful coping tool. There have been times when the stress I was under would have brought me near the breaking point, but then I remember her teaching. If you turn it over to God, it will be okay at the end, even if you're 20 points behind on halftime. By Abraham Turisky, medical doctor. All right, so this is a short story. Uh, another round. Would you like a second round? Okay, our next story is called He Sat Alone. There's a quote by Anonymous. He says, Most people would have learned their mistakes if they weren't so busy denying them. Most people would learn from their mistakes if they weren't so busy denying them. Anonymous. It was an ordinary Saturday at Fenway Park in Boston. The streets were exploding with hoots and hollers. A closer look, however, revealed that no one was engaged in conversation. Men and women alike kept their eyes either on the ground before them or focused straight ahead. Then I saw him. An elderly man was sitting alone on a stoop. Curious, I I wandered over there for a better look. A shiver traveled her the length of my spine. I f- Unfortunately, the temperature was not the cause of the horrible sensation. Amidst a flowing river of Nikes and Timberland boots, the nameless man wore shoes that had worn through long ago. Dressed in treadbare rags, he held a silver coffee can in one trembling hand and his sign in the other. It read, Hungry Korean war vet. As if already dead, the man's yellow eyes sunken deep in his head, belief years of alcoholism, and a gray 
tinged, painted his somber face. I was remembered of my own sacrifice made by my country in Operation Desert Storm. For a moment, I thought that my stomach might actually kick up the two hot dogs I just devoured. People circumvented the man as if he were a leper. Not one person stopped to help. Obviously, it was easier to assume the man was a con artist than to find the truth in his tormenting eyes. I somehow understood there were still many truths that people did not want to know. In this case, the truth only defined a cold and uncaring society. Other passerbyers went above and beyond apathy. They were mean enough to leave behind an insult or a laugh to stab the poor man's heart. The vest was too old and worried to strike back at the masses. Each time a harsh word was offered him, his eyes closed briefly and then opened again, and if he completely absorbed the cruelty. Fifteen endless minutes of lapse, and although the coffee can remain empty, I witnessed a fellow human being suffer more embarrassment and humiliation than deserving of an entire lifetime. Whatever dignity remained was greedily and brutally stripped away by those who somewhere along the line were hardened and left blind. Suddenly, another unfortunate soul captured my attention. It was another elderly gentleman, this one confined to a wheelchair. The man slowly approached a curbstone and then worked his chair back and forth in a courageous attempt to clear the lip. It was no use. Determination and effort were quickly replaced by frustration and mumble curses. Through it all, hundreds of patriotic baseball fans herded around him and proceeded on their different ways. I stood paralyzed with shock. As the number numbness wore off, I took two steps to assist, but was one step too late. The homeless man placed his sign and empty cup on his stoop and went to help another who needed help more help. My eyes filled. There was still some good left in the world. Strangely enough, it always seemed to come from those who were in desperate need of what they themselves gave so selfishly. For his trouble, the Korean vet received a donation. The two shared a genuine smile, which apparently only those in need could understand. The pauper returned to his stoop, and the judgment gaze of a million cruel eyes the man in the wheelchair pumped his arms to another of life's obstacles. I stood amazed. The same chill returned to my spine. After placing a crispy $20 bill in the beggar's can, I received a nod for my generosity and then a tag on the shoulder. My brother Randy raised eyelids told me that he didn't approve. During the lengthy ride home, I explained the tragic scene, and the topic led to some unusual deep discussion. Though we were in complete agreement on most points, not supporting a person's drug or alcohol habit, and the genuine possibility of being scammed, I found that Randy shared the strong opinion of most. I, on the other hand, was less suspicious. Opinions of most, I, on the other hand, was less These didn't seem a need for it.
There didn't seem a need for it. We traveled a good distance in silence. I decided that as long as my own intentions of helping were pure, then I didn't see any risk of injury to anyone. For the price of a scratch ticket, I'd rather give the man the benefit of the doubt. The odds seemed better. Besides, it was one of society's problems that more people would be taking personally. With thousands being swallowed up by substance abuse, alcoholism, unemployment, and homelessness each day, it could have easily been anyone sitting on that same lonely stoop. Then placing myself in the man's worn shoes, I only hoped that someone would be kind enough to take a chance on me rather than the state's lottery. Reaching Fall River, my traveling companion broke a silence with a very innocent question. Though he expects no answer, Randy asked, Steve, don't you ever wonder why God has given so much to so few and so little to so many? Surprising that my brother's thoughts mirror my own, I smiled. The answer seemed so easy, so obvious. To Randy's surprise, I responded sincerely. I think that God has given enough. The problem is that people have forgotten how to share his generous gifts. Needless to say, the rest of the journey was driven in silence. The Boston Red Sox continued to lose, and somewhere on a very cold stoop, a needy man sat alone. That was by Steve Van Manchester. You know, I giving the benefit of the doubt, when I don't give, I struggle with, did I do the right thing? And I usually follow it up with about a lot of... Uh, prayer for the person for the next three days with Psalm 23 and kind of make up for my lack of greed when I didn't give five, three, four dollars. God is a just God and he expects us to be generous. He gives us a lot of chances. What a tough world, huh? We never know when we're going to get tested. God bless you. Have a great day. Give them heaven. Greetings. Our story is called Panty for Gold from Chicken Soup for the Recovering Soul. An anonymous said, never put a period where God has placed a comma. (laughs) Here we go. With my head bowed through my tears and grief in a barely audible choking voice, I was finally talking with my dad. After decades of mundane conversations about sports, the weather, and gossip about relatives, I was rehearsing all of those things I wanted to say to my dad but never could. Things like, thank you for staying with mom when I know you wanted to leave. And thank you for playing with me that one day when I was a kid. At that same time, I was unconsciously hoping that he would tell me all the things that I had waited forever to hear from him. Simple things like, I love you, and I am proud of you, whom you have become. In what was one of those sacred moments in group therapy that I have since come to treasure, All of my fellow group members were crying. My therapist was crying. (laughs) I was crying. We were all crying, or so I thought. When I looked up at the man seated across from me, the man I had chosen to play the role of my father, he sat with a total stoic 
unaffected look on his face. He noticed that I had stopped talking and looked down at his watch as if to say, Are you finished yet? I silently shook my head and thought, That's exactly what my dad would do if he were here. At that moment, a level of grief like none I had ever known came over me. I literally collapsed on the floor as convulsive sobs shook my body. I lay there for a long time, during which I fittingly wondered if I would be the first person to literally cry to death during group therapy. Later, as the group was giving me feedback, the man who had played my father asked, I wonder if I did something wrong. I looked for a while like you weren't going to make it. It looked for a while, wow. No, you did not, nothing wrong, I replied. In fact, what you did may have been the best gift I was ever given. In this man's moment of being totally detached and unaffected by my tenderness and longing, I realized that my parents, my father in particular, could never be there for me in ways I had always wanted, certainly deserved and still longed for. I understood that no matter what I did or said, they could not parent any better than they had. It became crystal clear that it was beyond my parents' ability and more important, was nothing personal. I was 38 years old. My life changed with that experience and though it is difficult for me to determine exactly when my recovery started, I grew up that day. In terms of my relationship with my parents, in some kind of spiritual way, I was able to release my mom and dad from their roles as mom and dad. A few weeks later, my dad was scheduled to undergo his third hip replacement surgery. Now, my father did not have three legs, but he had been among the first to ever have the surgery, and at that time, the process often needed to be repeated. The call from my mother's Relaying the details made me realize that my father and I had never expressed our love for each other in words. A voice inside me said, You need to tell him you love him before you lose that chance. By this time in my recovery, I had begun to know and trust that voice, so I decided to drive the 300 miles to see him and tell him that I love him. For moral support, I took my wife and two young children with me. We arrived at the hospital the day before the surgery was to take place. My mom, sister, and brother were in the room when we arrived. Though I entered the room with great resolve and I had shared with my wife and children what I intended to do, when I opened my mouth, I couldn't get the words out. My throat literally closed around the words. My family lived in great denial about most things and the possibility of my 68-year-old father dying as a result of his surgery was never considered. After 20 minutes of small talk and my repeated attempts to say those three little words, with no success, I felt an overwhelming need to get out of the room. I said my goodbyes and good lucks and left the room with my father's parting word ringing in my ears. It was stupid for you to drag those kids all this way over here just to see me in the hospital. As I walked down the corridor feeling like a complete failure to this day, 
I swear that I had I heard a voice come over the hospital's intercom saying, just go tell him. I stopped right there in the middle of the hallway and said out loud, I'm just going to say it. My wife and kids said in, in what seems to be innocence, we'll wait here. <clears throat> I turned around and walked back to my dad's room and said, Dad, the reason I came was to make sure you knew that I love you. Now I know, now I don't know what kind of response you might predict I would have gotten, but I doubt that it would be what happened next. My dad reared up in the hospital bed and began having an uncontrollable coughing fit. My mother launched herself across the bed to comfort him and scream, Oh no, while my brother stood up and gave me a look that said, (laughs) Why do you always cause trouble? My sister began quietly zombing in the corner. They started calling for the nurses. As I turned around and walked out the door, I felt victorious. I had verbalized the words, I love you, to my father. Words that have never been spoken between us. I also thought, that's $2,000 I won't have to spend in therapy because that piece of unfinished business with my dad to deal with. I now look back at the moment as the first time in my life that I had ever acted as an adult with my father. Six months later, on my next visit, as we were saying goodbye, I had the spontaneous urge to give my dad a hug. The last time my father and I had touched in any way was 33 years earlier on my fifth birthday. He had carried me from the car where I had pretended to fall asleep and put me to bed. It was a game my brother and I had perfected, a childish way to get the touch from our dad that we craved. During all the subsequent years, through all of life's adventures, celebrations, trials, and tribulations, we never shook hands, slapped each other on the back, or touched in any way. If I follow through on this urge to hug him, it will represent a significant shift in our relationship. It was time for the second adult act of a lifetime with my dad. As I stepped up to him, I said for the second time in my life, Dad, I love you. I put my arms around him and gave him a hug. He suddenly got very rigid and actually began trembling. When I stepped back from him, I felt this surge of pride, knowing that in initiating the physical contact, I reclaimed a part of what I had always wanted from my dad and perhaps saved another $2,000 in therapy. If my dad would have said, I don't ever want you to touch me again, or I don't ever want you to say you love me again, I would have honored that, but he didn't. I took his silence on the matter as a permission to continue what was considered, at least for my family, this brazen behavior. A few months later, at the end of another visit, as I stepped up to hug him, his arms involuntarily opened about four inches as I moved to give him a hug. That time, as I stepped back, I choked up, realizing that I was teaching my father how to touch his son. 
Those four inches of movement represented all he had to offer at that time. Over the following months and years, I continued to express my love to my mother and father and to hug them. Before I realized that they actually began hugging back. In fact, one time when I was leaving and walking towards the car, my dad yelled, You forgot to give me a hug. Slowly, the expression of love that had started out as unilateral behaviors on my part became mutual. I was something of a prospector panning for little nuggets of gold. After my mother's death, my dad became more and more curious, asking questions about my work. By that time, my wife and I were owners of on-site workshops, a recovery business created by co-dependency pioneers Sharon and Joe Cruz. When he was 72 years old, my father began attending programs, seminars he called them. At the closing ceremony of what has was to be his last workshop four years later, I watched with my now adult son as my dad stood in front of all the participants and staff and said, I have come to believe that if Ted's mom and I would have known what I have been able to learn doing these seminars, Ted and his children lives would have been very different. Shortly after that, my father was diagnosed with brain cancer. After his first surgery, I accompanied him to physical therapy where we put rings on posts and threw balls in baskets. Laughing and joking for a moment, I was transported back to the day decades ago when we had played together when I was 12. That night, as I stood before the mirror brushing my teeth, I was overcome with a sense of gratitude and fullness. This confused me because I had come home with the clarity that my dad would never walk again and that he was dying. Then the words, unconditional love, came to me and I understood that this is what I had experienced with my dad that day. I had no expectations of him or, or him of me. We just to were together and that alone made the day very special. One of the most precious gifts of my recovery was accepting that my parents just didn't possess boundless love, endless nurturing, playfulness, tenderness, or fun to give. However, I was lucky enough to have had the courage to find a way to let go of my idealized vision of what my parents' love should look like. On the day of my father's last surgery, I was aware of my pride in him and how he had lived his life. He was teaching me, by example, that it is never too late to learn. That it is never too late to start recovering. And now at this point in our relationship, how to die with grace and dignity. In the last few moments before he was taken in to the operating room, I blurted out, Dad, you know I love you and I am so proud of you. Giving us a minute, the attendant stopped wheeling the gurney. With tears in his eyes, reaching for my hand, my father turned toward me and said, what I had waited a lifetime to hear. Ted, I don't think I have ever told you how proud I am of you and the life you have made for yourself 
And I know I didn't tell you enough of my love for you. I didn't tell you often enough of my love for you. Those were the last words my father ever spoke. He passed away several months later. Ted Klontz. Amen. Thank you so much for listening to that. God bless you. Have a great head. A great heaven. A great existence. Chicken Soup for the Recovering Soul. A book review. Jack Canfield and Mark Victor Hansen, plus other guys, Ackerman, Peluso, Seidler, and Peter Begso. The foreword. History teaches that no society or generation has gone untouched by alcoholism and addiction. Several hundred years ago, certain Native American tribes were known to have formed sobriety circles. During colonial times in the United States, noted physician Dr. Benjamin Rush, a signer of the Declaration of Independence, began to talk about drunkenness as a disease and call for treatment. One of the first attempts to deal with alcoholism was not on an individual basis, but through mutual support. In 1840, a group of people formed the Washingtonian Society, which at that time was a new and exciting approach. It became so popular that at one point there were 600,000 members. Also around this time, Dr. Magnus Huss, a Swedish physician, officially introduced the term alcoholism. An ongoing debate about the definition of alcoholism ensued, and at one time it was thought that as many as 200 definitions were being used. Regardless of how it was defined, many institutions were established to help alcoholics. The New York State Integrated Asylum, the Martha Washington Home in Chicago, and the Water Street Mission in New York City are a few examples. In 1879, Dr. Leslie Keeley began to open more than 120 institutions for addiction treatment in America. During the Civil War, many wounded soldiers were treated with morphine and developed physical dependence on the drug. Their dependence became known as the soldier's disease. Other drug problems surfaced as well, such as cocaine addiction and opiate dependence. By the turn of the century, concern over alcoholism and drug addiction was no longer limited to the attic. Responses to addiction started to develop from the government with such actions as the 1914 Harrison Tax Act to control opiates and cocaine and the involvement of the Supreme Court. However, all these efforts did not seem to reach the core of the problem for those struggling with addiction. It was obvious that addiction was not just a physical dependence on a substance and that recovery needed to be more than merely abstinence. For a brief time between 1900 and 1940, an organization known as the Oxford Group attempted to add spirituality to the concept of recovery. Affinance from alcohol was not a mandatory requirement for this group. It soon became clear something more was needed, something that would help people understand they need not 
recover loans, something that would help addicts experience not only loss, but also hope. Something that could replace a lifestyle of pain and addiction with one of, of health and healing and men, a broken spirit. Not just a body to bring peace to a troubled soul. In the United States, that something emerged in 1935 when two alcoholics, Bill W. and Dr. Bob, found each other and realized that together they could accomplish something that neither of them could do alone. It was the beginning of Alcoholics Anonymous and the beginning of the modern recovery movement. Alcoholics Anonymous AA was not the first group of alcoholics to join together, but it quickly became the most explosive and universal. Unlike other groups, its members found something that helped them make sense of their lives, to support each other, and to form a community that asked for nothing but gave much, that welcomed all, judged not, and replaced despair with spirituality and acceptance. <clears throat> AA offered something even more, a way of life. Based on a program of the 12 steps of AA and the 12 traditions, this way of life was not limited to overcoming your past, but also offered guidelines for living a healthy future physical, emotional, and spirituality. The success of AA quickly spread not only throughout America, but also the world. In fact, many non-alcoholics were attracted to AA's ideas about recovery because of the 12 steps and their application to other life situations. Without a doubt, a community had been born and its impact had touched the world. Other events were unfolding. Universities were beginning to take an interest in trying to better understand addiction and recovery. First among these was Yale, Yale which developed the Center of Alcohol Studies in 1943. In 1944, Marty Mann founded what is known today as the National Council on Alcoholism and Drug Dependence. A tremendous achievement in the treatment of addiction occurred in the late 1940s when three institutions, Pioneer House, Wilmar State Hospital, and Hazelden developed what is known as the Minnesota Model. Their pioneering work led to development of 28-day programs for treatment of chemical dependency. It was also around this time that the application of AA's program to other drug addictions emerged with the founding of Narcotics Anonymous. In the 1950s, things began to expand even more, with the founding of Elnon Family Groups by Lois W. and Ann B., wives of the original members of AA, family members and friends of addicts were offered support and hope based on the 12 steps for the first time with the addition of spouses and children of alcoholics. COAs. The number of people involved in recovery grew tremendously. By the 1950s, the American Medical Association and other organizations recognized alcoholism as a disease, and Dr. Root Fox established what is known today as the American Society of Addiction Medicine. In the new decade, the American Bar Association and the American Public Health Association adopted official statements accepting alcoholism as a treatable illness. During this time, other drugs were being abused as well, and the level of public awareness for treatment and recovery began to grow. Drug abuse, alcoholism, and chemical dependency were now mainstream in America, and the country was trying to find help. 
Controversy ensued over social policy and the best approach for prevention, identification, and treatment. Organizations began to help, and during the 1970s and 80s, hospitals developed residential treatment programs. Third-party insurance coverage now included treatment for alcohol and drug abuse, and the recovery movement continued to expand. It was also during this time that another phenomenon emerged. The children of alcoholics, COAs, wanted to join the recovery movement with an estimated population of more than 28 million. Their inclusion further popularized recovery. Several books on the subject reached bestsellers lists. Conferences were widely attended, and mental health professionals began to become involved in their treatment. The Children of Alcoholics Foundation and the National Association for Children of Alcoholics were founded in the early 80s. Concepts such as dysfunctional families and codependency became everyday words. All of these changes garnered more attention for recovery and in many cases encouraged more debate. Through it all, however, one thing remained constant and that was the quest for recovery and the application of recovery programs to as many people as possible. In the 1990s and into this new century, recovery has continued to change and grow to meet the needs of diverse, complex society. Concepts such as co-occurring disorders, outpatient treatments, and drug courts have emerged. The area of 28 residential treatment programs have declined due to challenges from managed care and more and more clients are treated on an outpatient basis. Gender-specific treatment and programs that are more inclusive for people of color are becoming the norm. The concept of recovery is now being applied to a variety of quality of life issues. More than an historical accounting of dates, facts, and the founding of institutions, the history of recovery is truly a story of grassroots movement. It was not something created by professionals, social policy, or directives, people coming together who share a common history and who share a common dream for a better life created it. Those who choose not to judge each other but to support each other started it. Those who struggle alone but recover together continue it. It has truly become a recovering community, a community of hope, strength, acceptance, love, and resiliency. Regardless of when or why it started or who or what institution participated, recovery is a gift that has been given to all of us. That's Robert J. Ackerman, Ph.D. Okie doke. Margaret Mead said, Never doubt that a small group of thoughtful, committed citizens can change the world. Indeed, it's only the thing that ever has. Okay, doke. Introduction. You're about to become acquainted with one of the greatest communities in the world. Not one consistent of houses, buildings, streets, shopping malls, and schools, but one that resides in the very hearts and souls of people who share a common bond. Each member of the recovering community has successfully overcome tremendous obstacles in their lives and in doing so find themselves in a better place physically, 
emotionally and spiritually than in they ever thought possible. Chicken soup for the recovering soul will move, inspire, and entertain you with the stories from only a few of the millions of people who have become part of the recovering community. You will quickly discover that these stories are not about pain and despair, but rather about hope and resiliency. They are not stories about strategies for change, but stories about the human spirit that will not be denied. There are the stories of people who are willing to share parts of their lives in order to help others. Most people who live, whose lives are touched by addiction and other problems feel completely alone. They believe that no one else would understand or appreciate their situation. And although they begin their journey in solitude, they soon find many others who share similar experiences and are willing to help them. Often facing dawning circumstances and ever-present self-doubt, people just like your comfort, their fears of the future in order to change and find a better way to live. As you read, you'll understand how an individual cannot do it alone, how mentors appear at the right time and place, and you will meet people who believe they need no one's help but begin to reach out to others and be touched in return. Restore your faith as our writers describe the birth, growth, and nurturing of spirituality that enriches the lives of people in recovery. And for so many who struggle feeling they have no choice, new families are found in every page as the author shares their discovery that families of origin, friends, and even our support groups can summon us with life-affirming healthy behaviors. You'll be filled with awe, wonder, and appreciation at the resilience of people in the face of great odds to not only overcome but thrive and grow from difficult, seemingly insurmountable circumstances. Their stories are a mixture of hope, inner strength, and serenity. And although most of the stories in Chicken Soup for the Recovering Soul focus on overcoming addiction to alcohol and other drugs, we share a selection of pieces that illustrate how the process of recovery is now applied to other quality of life issues from depression to chronic illnesses. The concept of recovery and the use of 12-step programs are applicable to many different issues with equally successful results. Supporting each other is an effective tool and consequently the recovering community is constantly growing. We should not be surprised when something works so well, it will become part of people's lives. Finally, one of the most cherished virtues in the life of a recovering individual is the resurrection of joy, and one of the greatest indicators of recovery is the desire to share what you have found. The authors represent in Chicken Soup for the Recovering Soul want to share the hope, resilience, joy, and spirituality that have touched their souls. This book is about joy and life changes, a portable support group that binds millions of people together in a new community. It is the recovering community. Welcome. We would love to hear your reactions to the stories in this book. Please let us know what your favorite stories were and how they affected you. We also invite you to send us stories you would like to see published in future editions of Chicken Soup for the Soul. Please send submissions to Chicken Soup for the Soul, P.O. Box 
330-880-3080, Santa Barbara, California, Welcome to today's soup, cup of soup from Recovery uh, Soul, Recovering. This story we have here is uh, called Recovery's Unlikely Destination. It says right here, uh, the surest way to happiness is to lose yourself in a cause greater than yourself. Recovery is a life work, a journey, not a destination. Being on this journey for all of my adult life and a good chunk of my teenage years, I have found that recovery comes in many guises. Our self-help programs, our reading, our writings, our friends, and for some of us also our work. As a psychologist who depends on a great deal of time with children, spends a great deal of time with children, whose lives have been unalterably changed by alcohol and drug addictions. I have found my own path deepening, challenged, and ultimately redeemed by the children I work with. Those of us who are in recovery are comfortable to a greater or lesser degree with the concept of a higher power. I found this concept profoundly moving as a teenager and throughout my adulthood, so much so that I have written books speaking about a higher parent, a positive force that we have internalized that can and does guide us. So when tragedy struck in my family's life and my sister who suffered from both addiction and mental illness was murdered, I turned to my higher power and asked a simple question, why? Why? I thought, hadn't I learned enough? Why did I need to suffer in this way? Why did my mother need to have yet another loss? I questioned listen, and felt the enormity of the vacuum of silence. There was no epiphany that allowed me to begin to grab hold of my life. No lesson learned that I could share, only an emptiness. A growing numbness that, when I began to feel again, became another source of pain. Those of us who live with family members who are so very ill know that there will be no happiness ending. We know there will be no miracle cure, no happily ever after. We watch someone we cherish disappear slowly, bit by bit, while still in the prime of their life, and feel powerless to stop it. But that does not mean we are prepared for the end. And we can never be prepared for such a tragic end, ending as a murder. I know I wasn't, and I wasn't sure how to try to recover, or even if it was possible. First step work. First step work. 
A little voice inside of me said, I want I went to meetings, read, prayed, cried, and spent long periods of time not speaking or thinking. After a lifetime of being resilient, I no longer felt any connection to this part of who I thought I was. I had written a new book on women and resilience. I was lecturing and had a full-time private practice as a psychologist. In my worst moments, I read the book I had written as if someone else had authored it. It was a reminder of my former self, with an emphasis on former. I needed something different if I was to heal. In the midst of my pain, I realized I needed a change, something dramatic, something that lifted me out of the known and pushed me to an edge that I could master. I understood that I needed to be in this pain and understand it, and I needed to give back to reach those who were, like my sister, abandoned, those who solely shunned, those for whom there was little sympathy and not much hope. I realized I needed to do 12-step work. That's when my higher power went to work. Out of the blue, I was approached to work at a statewide child welfare agency. Here would be a place to reach in and bring the strength of those youth to light. So abused and so hurt, these are children from families frequently in despair. Many have no family at all, few biological connections to any other adult. Youth who claim family friends as family as no other family was available. In some ways, the parallel my sister's life. My sister lacked an anchor. She was also homeless. These are youth who are struggling in pain and angry. Angry that they had no answer. Angry that no one could make it stop. Angry angry as hell, so much so they had been placed outside of their community. I knew this type of anger with one difference. I hadn't been placed outside of my community. I had chosen to go so I could again find myself. I once worked clinically with a teacher who was so... Relieved when a student she had was arrested. She said, I am so happy he threw the brick through the window in the school because now we have to pay attention to him. Now we have to figure out why he is failing. I understood that comment when I came to work with my boys. The children in child welfare are there in large part because no one, not the school that they often skip or the mental health clinics, where they went to for treatment, not the child abuse hotlines where their desperation got attention, not the emergency room where their injuries were nursed, nor the judge where they appeared before could figure out why they were failing. These children are placed away from their communities, away from their families if they have one, so that someone can figure out what's going on. As painful as it was for me to try to understand why what what happened to my sister happened, it was infinitely easier for me if for I wasn't an adult. I had a recovery program. I had been and lived through other tragedies, but try explaining to a 14-year-old why his brother is dead from a drug deal gone bad, why his best friend had just committed suicide by drinking and taking pills of an unknown origin, why his father killed his mother or why he is free for adoption and has been some time. But there is no one interested. 
the kind of relentless suffering these kids have experienced put tragedy on the whole new plane. It also broadens what recovery is really about. I realized when I committed myself to this work that I was not, as friends said, being so wonderful by working with these youths. I was doing this in order to heal. I was doing this in order to learn about the resilience that kept these kids getting up in the morning, let alone the strength that it took to get through a day. I wanted to be with those who knew the misery I was experiencing, who shared the pain that I knew so well, a pain I couldn't run from a pain I had to go through and for which I had no path. There is such hope radiating from these kids. Despite everything that life has dished out to them, they refuse to throw down their cards. They keep thriving. They keep dreaming. I need to remember how to do this. And I have. Together we have healed, and I am so much the wiser for this. I had a session yesterday with one of the boys I see clinically. I was slowly walking him back to his cottage. It is one of the simple pleasures of working here. The ability to be outside walking in the country, enjoying the air, the wind in my face, and the light, unlike many staff who drive from building to building in a mad dash to save a minute. I walk whenever I can. It is a way of taking care of myself between sessions, of having a moment of peace, a moment to remember. We had spent our time taking, uh, talking about choices, choices he had made with his new re- now regrets. Oh, yes, I know those, my little voice says, choices are now, you cease. Yes, I say again of myself, he wants help in making better choices. That's why I'm here. That's what I need help with, he says, smiling at me from under hooded eyes. He had a brilliant logic. On the way back to the cottage, he accepts my offer to help me write a curriculum about making choices. I know writing is therapeutic for me, and I know it will be for him. In his cottage, another boy stares, starts teasing him about having no family. Kids in here will take whatever advantage life offers them, not unlike the outside. This boy not nearly as personable as the other, as the child I see clinically, knows where this child is vulnerable. Baiting goes back and forth, but the child I have just seen smiles at me and says, Choices. I'm not going to hit him. I nodded. He's getting it, and so am I. Patricia O. Gorman from PAPHD. You know, one of the things that I was that child, I was always constantly... Fernando, right here, I am recovering, I'm a Christian, Uh, I have recovered, you know, I'm not brawling and drinking and yelling middle of the night, hitting cars, toasters, Uh, one of the things, I remember walking away from a, a session where this guy, you know, that people kept talking to me about choices, and I'm thinking, you know, be a better person. With 30 visits to um, Juvenile Hall, you would think that someone would ask me, point blank, to be good. I'd like to ask you to be good. And I'm walking away from one of the sessions, I'm thinking to myself, why are they going around the bushes all over the place? Why don't they just ask me to be good? You know, it's almost like a computer. You know, you put the right 
uh, terminology in there and then it just starts acting properly. So I like to ask you to ask your children, to ask them, you're a grown-up that never grew, grew up, they're still crying on their milk, to be good. I like to ask you to be good, to be good. Um, and then tell them, I love you and I forgive you. Or you can tell them, love me, don't hate me. Those are all powerful words that clear the air and makes for a good life. I like to ask you to be good. Love me. Don't hate me. I love you. I forgive you. Have a great day. Bill saves the bill. They can because they think they can. Virgil. In April 2000, we sat together in a packed room surrounded by state legislators, lobbies, and lawyers. Bill, 10-year-old son, could sense that I was nervous and squeezed my hand. He looked up at me with his azuri blue eyes and smiled in his reassurance way. I once again reflected on how lucky I was to have such a beautiful, loving child. We were in the state senate chambers of the Capitol building in Sacramento, California. Senator Wesley Chesbrough was sponsoring a bill that would require health insurance companies to offer treatment for substance abuse. I was preparing to offer personal testimony as to the effectiveness of treatment on alcohol and drug addiction. As a recovering addict, my whole life was suddenly turned around two years before when I stumbled into a substance abuse treatment at Kaiser Permanent, a large HMO in California. I was lucky to have health insurance that covered treatment for drug addiction. Many people are not so fortunate. As we sat waiting my turn, we listened to the insurance company representative and lobbies testify against the bill. The arguments were persuasive, claiming treatment was expensive and not cost-effective. It was fairly clear from the Senate committee's comments that the bill would not pass. My son was listening to. He squeezed my hand at one point and whispered, Mom, let me talk. I was a bit confused and asked him, Do you mean up there at the podium in front of all these people? He simply nodded and said, Yes, I want to talk. I sat back in surprise, and then I whispered, What are you going to say? He replied, Just wait, Mom, you'll see. He reached for my purse and got out a pencil. On the back of the Senate agenda, he started writing notes to himself. In no time at all, it was my turn to speak. Bill insisted on coming to the podium with me. I gave my two-minute testimonial and then asked permission from the floor for my son to say a few words. He was so small he could barely reach the microphone. He took a moment to look at each member of the Senate Commission, put aside his notes, and began. My name is Bill Lee, and I am 10 years old. Up until I was seven, my mom was really addicted to drugs. Sometimes I couldn't wake her up. Sometimes I was hungry and had to try to cook my own food. One time we were homeless. I remember thinking maybe she wasn't really my mom anymore. Maybe there was an alien inside her. I didn't know it was because of drugs. 
the Senate Commission was giving him their full attention as he continued. She finally told me that she was addicted to drugs, but that she would get better because she was getting treatment. She promised that everything would be different. And today, my life is different. Now, my mom is always there to help me. We go everywhere together. She takes me to Waterworld. We go skiing. She helps me at my, for my school, and she comes to all my soccer games. No matter what we do, we have fun and we laugh. Bill paused just for a moment to collect his final thoughts. I love my mom more than anything. If she didn't get treatment, I think she would be dead. And where would I be? I just know there are other kids out there with a mom or dad who needs treatment. That's why I hope you vote yes on the bill. Because every kid deserves to have mom and dad who can get treatment if they need it. Thank you. The pack room was utterly still for a moment. Then, one by one, everyone stood and clapped and cheered. He took my hand, and I gave him a reassuring smile as we turned and faced the crowd. I thought my heart would burst. It was truly a moment I will never forget. To this day, I am in awe of Bill's courage, and I wonder... of the marvelous force that prompted him to address the crowd that day. Senators proclaimed the bill, saved the bill on that day. Indeed, he did, excuse me. They proclaimed that Bill, Billy had saved the bill on that day. Indeed, from Tracy Lee Cohen. Cohen. Amen. Fernando, I'm a alcoholic addict. I did not get, I did not get treatment myself, but I think my recovery process would have been a lot faster. For one reason, I say this, uh, because we uh, we never been given the truth. Once we're given the truth and we displayed it, uh, some of us pick it up and run with it, and are aware. I was not aware I had the wrong set of rules to live by. Thanks to Alcoholics Anonymous, the 12 step program, Narcotics Anonymous, Overeaters Anonymous, they have given us a lot of information. Gamblers Anonymous, and how to act and do and be. Our next story is called Wise Beyond His Ears. The weak can never forgive. Forgiveness is the attribute of the strong. Mahatma Gandhi. When he was only 12, Danny chose to come to one of our treatment programs. He had been inspired by his older brother, Progress, in dealing with anger, which was also a significant issue for Danny. Although Danny's father was sober, Danny hated that more than when he was drinking. When his father was drinking, Daddy understood a disease was involved and that his father couldn't make loving choices. Now that Dad was sober, he still didn't reach out, which confused and hurt Danny. Dad had replaced his alcohol with his recovery program, but life hadn't changed for Danny. When he approached his father with tears about getting beat up in school, 
Dad just looked at him and said, Easy does it, son. You've got to learn to let go of these fears. Danny wanted some reasons, some reassurance and a hug, a little understanding from his father. But what Danny got was a recovery slogan. Well, Danny was with us. He found lots of surrogate dads and got lots of hugs. By the time he completed the program, it was less important to him that his father wasn't able to give him the attention or affection he needed. Danny learned to ask for support wherever he could find it. I was at a conference several months later, and Danny was in the audience. During a break, I asked him whether his dad was now hugging him, and unfortunately, he said no. He went on to tell me that during the recent holidays, his grandparents had come to visit, and Danny watched the interaction between his father and his grandpa. I noticed that grandpa never touched or hugged or even talked nice to dad. No wonder dad didn't know how to treat me. He said with wisdom beyond his years. With his abundance of treatment hugs and his new ability to get more, Danny became more confident and began to insulate the hugs. An interesting thing happened. As Danny explained it, it doesn't matter who starts a hug, just as long as you make a connection with the other person. I've been in my dad's arms 37 times over in the past month, and I'm going to keep giving my dad hugs until someday he learns and has so many he can afford to give one away. I want to be nearby and get the first one. This young man, only 12, had learned to forgive and use his energy for getting his needs met. With fulfilled needs, he can afford to help someone else. In this case, his father. Feeling all the feeling and forgiving someone else is a gift we give to ourselves. It's called serenity. When we let go of the energy it takes to hold on to anger, blame, and resentment, we have the energy to get our own needs met. Like Danny, we can all learn to plant our own garden instead of waiting for someone to send us flowers. This is from Sharon Cruz, C-R-U-S-E. And we have a quote here from Ernie Larson. It says, healing does not mean the damage never existed. It means the effects of the damage no longer control our lives. Amen. Beautiful story, huh? One more. This one's called By the Dawn's Early Light. And Aristotle said, I count him braver who overcomes his desires than him who conquers his enemies. For the hardest victory is over self. The air was stifling in the small dimly lit room. The aging general in the red bat robe said in heavily accent English, My finest campaign was invading Hungary in the 50s. Anger filled my throat with hot bile as I remember my Hungarian neighbor back in the United States whose family had been victims of that invasion. It was November 1990. Perestroika and Gorbachev's temperance campaigns were full swing. I was one of five Americans invited to spend the night in the detox ward of Moscow Hospital Number 19. 
where 6,000 bears were filled with alcoholics being subject to liver washings and other physical procedures. They would be sent home cured. All would drink again, and most would die alcoholics. Wanda, Nancy, Bob, Dick, and I were members of the Soviet American Conference on Alcoholism. Sharing our stories of staying sober in AA, most of our audiences the past week had shed tears of gratitude as we shared our way to freedom from addiction. Here, it was different. An air of disbelief and arrogance filled the overheated space. I looked to the small high window for some relief from the fatigue of a long day. I found none in the snow piled against the darkness. After we spoke and the general had finished, two strapping Soviet athletes explained confidently, we've been here before, we'll be out in five days and back to our hockey team. A young doctor in charge of the detox unit proffered his opinion. Our people are just now able to have some privacy and you think they'll sit in a room and tell about their lives? When I introduced myself in the little Russian, I knew, Ya, Terry, Ya, alcoholic. The head nurse replied, No, no, too healthy, too pretty. The general continued, I had to come here. His roomy eyes slid over us, and I shivered in disgust. I had no place where they would let me stay. Self-pity poured out over his expensive leather slippers, now worn and scuffed. With all my medals and successes, this is where they finished me, my career. And he put his hand to his face in the gesture we had seen many times that week. Tip of thumb to lips, head back as if draining a glass, the sign of an alcoholic. So this was the enemy I had grown up fearing, the red menace, the communist set to rule the world. I shot my eyes to our group leader, a successful lawyer in the United States. She was most comfortable in tight situations. Thank you, General, and all you who shared this evening, Wanda said. We end our meetings with the Lord's Prayer. If you wish to join us, all stood and reached out to hold hands. The General took mine. His hand was cold and wet. Shame and guilt filled me. Mumble English and Russian mingle in hurried prayer in hasty good night. The rough cotton pillowcases rubbed cold against my cheek. I could hear an occasional sigh or deep breath from Wanda and Nancy and just make out the shapes of our high metal beds, lining tree walls on the large square room. Looking into the darkness above me, I could not see the thin ceiling. I had noticed as I undressed for bed. We had said little after goodnight hugs to Dick and Bob, who now slept in the next room. So exhausted I could not think, and unidentified heaviness weighed upon me until I pleaded, Whatever it is, Lord, I give it to you. I need to sleep. It seemed like only a few minutes later that I woke up suddenly, cloaked in fear. Low Russian voices and the squeak of rolling cart wheels wrenched me back to where I was. Another alcoholic was being admitted to the detox unit. Lord, I breathed, what a lousy disease. 
A chill ran through me, pulling the covers up to my ears. I closed my eyes and saw the general, shame and guilt mixed with the memory of his cold, sweaty hand. We have a disease, cunning, baffling, and powerful. The big book of AA says, And last night I judged the general, refusing to identify with him as a fellow sufferer. No wonder I felt guilt and shame when he took my hand for the Lord's Prayer. If I had allowed myself, I would have remembered that my hands were cold and wet many days earlier in sobriety when I was desperate for a drink, but equally desperate not to be a drunk. And I would have said to him, It's okay, we have a choice. We don't have to drink tonight. A loud knock in the nurses opened the door. Hurry, the hospital ambulance is waiting to take you back to the hotel for the conference breakfast meeting. I wouldn't have a chance to correct my mistakes. I dressed quickly as I whispered a prayer. Please, Holy Spirit, help me here. Searching for my gloves, I put my hand in the pocket of my jacket and found several small pins I had brought from home to trade. I picked out three and joined my friends in the narrow hallway. We filed slowly past the members of our meeting last night. The snow was blowing in the open door beyond them, and the ambulance driver was motioning us to hurry. One after the other, they at least kissed me on each cheek. I placed a New York Yankee pin in their trembling hands and got big grins in return. The doctor shook my hand and smiled, and the nurse hugged me. Alcoholic, she said. Healthy, pretty, we hugged again. The general stood last near the door open, his red wool bathroom tight around his bulging middle, silk pajama pants flowing over and nearly hiding his slippers. I opened my hand to show him the red and white cross flag of the U.S. Army signal corps and slipped the pin into his hand. My father fought for this country too, I said. You and I were... We fight together. I put the tip of my thumb to my lips and tilted my head back. We laugh and our cheers smile mingle as we hug. Terry P. Wow. All I can say, Fernando, on that story, I remember that I I remember this, that I sat on my hands, on my sweaty cold hands uh, for two years. Trembling, wanting a drink in AA at work. I always say that uh, working for a meat packing uh, place where I had 32 degrees temperature helped me in my recovery in the early days. Kept me nice and cool and cold in the shakes. At break time, I would sit on my hands because they shake so much after that alcoholic torture I came out of. Amen. That's what this story reminded me of. Okay, our our next quick story is called Gratitude. People have a way of becoming what you encourage them to be, not what you nag them to be. Scudder and Parker. That's one of the reasons I, Fernando, before I read the story, I, Fernando, say that you... uh, We need to accept people, you know, we can say it, but 
do we we got to thank God for their frailties their difficulties our difficulties our habits before change happens acceptance with love has to be and they will get better on their own that's the whole concept you know AA gives you love and acceptance and then we want to get better on our own we are not being nagged to be someone and Anyway, that's the way we change our loved ones, to uh, praise and gratitude, thanking God for them just the way they are. Just the way they are, alcohol and all. Early in my career, I took a position as a music therapist for a prison mental health unit. While serving my time in the system, I worked with an inmate whose story touched my life. This man, who I'll call Stephen, decided against going straight home from the office one day. Instead, he stopped for a cold one at a club close to his place of employment. Steve left the bar later than he had planned and in a hurry to get home, flew through a red light, broadsided another car, and killed a passenger instantly. The track event was his third DUI. That fateful night not only ended the lives of the passengers in that car, but cost Stephen 20 years of his freedom. Prior to trading trading in his polo shirts for drab brown overalls, Stephen had been an architect for a prestigious company living in a comfortable suburban life with his wife and two beautiful children. Losing his freedom and acquiring a taste for prison food were adjustments he found difficult. But living with his guilt and having his family disown him threw him into the depths of depression and several suicide attempts. By the time we met, Stephen was in his 10th year of a sentence and his third year of recovery. Stephen was quite a man during the five years that I knew him. He kept to himself and said very little unless spoken to first. He caused no trouble, never had a disagreement or altercation with other inmates and shared personal information with only two close friends, one of whom I later learned was his sponsor. He attended the required groups and went to his AA meetings religiously. To the non-therapeutic staff, he most likely appeared as just another one of the nameless inmates. On one particular day, the staff was keeping a careful eye on Stephen. He was up before the parole board and we, the staff, were already aware of his parolee would be denied and that he would have to serve out the remaining five years of his sentence. Because of Stephen's history of suicide attempts, the staff paid extra attention to Stephen to be sure that his blow would not be too much for him to bear. Arriving for work that morning, following Stephen's hearing, I spoke to the overnight staff who reported no problem that evening or the previous day. I then saw Stephen for our session. He appeared to be in good spirits, even though he knew he would not be seeing the walls outside of the penitentiary for another five years. I had expected to see that morning a morose man with a long drawn face who had probably not slept at all prior night. 
Instead, I was met by someone who looked well-rested and freshly shaven. He greeted me with a chipper, good morning, and I intently asked how he was doing. Did you happen to notice that beautiful sunrise this morning on your way into work, he asked. I shook my head no. Well, I just watched it for myself and realized how grateful I am that I can see the sunrise through the bars of my window. It is an especially beautiful morning, and I had just just had breakfast. Today, my oatmeal wasn't as cold today as it often is, which makes it a good day. As I thought about his comments, he paused ever so briefly before continuing. Yesterday's news was disappointing, but I realized I have a choice. For today, I am choosing to focus on the things that I do have instead of those which I don't. So in answer to your question of how I am doing today, I really am doing all right. The statement and the sincerity of his voice stopped me on my tracks. Could I believe that after getting the hit with another five years in jail, that he really was all right? Hearing the result in his voice and the simplicity with which he spoke, I realized, yes, he would be okay in the following days and weeks. Stephen seemed to glow with an inner peace and serenity. After a while, the position I left the position in the prison. I had no further contact with the inmates. But I never forget what I learned about acceptance and appreciation from Stephen. I am certain he's completed his sentence and has been released. But where is he today? I don't know. I wonder where he is living and if he continued on his journey of recovery. Today, when I started throwing a pity party for myself about things I lack or feelings overwhelmed, I remember that I, too, can choose what to focus on in my life. However bad things appear to be, I have the opportunity to watch every sunrise unobstructed by prison bars and I don't have to worry about cold oatmeal. I really am doing all right. It's going to be a good day. Lisa Kugler, K-U-G-L-E-R. Thank you, Lisa. And with that, we'll go ahead and take a break. Be back with more amazing stories. Thank you so much for listening. Hi, welcome to today's podcast. We have a couple of readings for you. Uh, out of the book of the um, One Day at a Time. What's the name of that book? Yeah. When we hear an LLM member say detached from the problem, we react in various ways. We may think rebelliously, how can they expect me to detach from my own wife or husband? Our lives are bound together and I am involved whether I want to or not. This is true, but there are kinds of involvements that can only make our difficulties worse. We make trouble for ourselves when we interfere with the alcoholic's activities, trying to find out where he or, or she is, what they've been doing, where's the money went. Suspicion, searching and prying will only keep us in a state of turmoil and make the situation worse instead of improving it. Today's reminder, what we are meant to know will come to our knowledge without any action on our part. This is the basic spiritual truth. 
implicit in our slogan, let go and let God, when action is really required, as when a crisis happens, we will then be better prepared to meet the emergency. He that is in perfect peace suspects no one, but he that is discontented and disturbed is tossed about with various suspicions. He is neither quiet himself, he is neither quiet himself, nor does he allow others to be to be quiet, to be quiet. Thomas A. Kempis. And with that in note, I'm gonna read from a book called Chicken Soup for the Recovering Soul, uh, Al-Anon's story, and the wisdom to know the difference. Convincing yourself not to win the argument. Robert Half, it's a quote. Here's the story. The doctor says, don't worry about Mark. You go to Al-Anon. Huh. I stared at my doctor in disbelief. Me? I'm not the one with the drinking problem. I know that, Carol, but someone you love drinks and it's affecting your health in ways you don't even realize. I hurried to the car, climbed in and slammed the door. Imagine him telling me I need help. I turned the keys over and gunned the accelerator. Crunch, my head jerked. Behind me sat another car, its red fender bunched up like a wadded piece of paper. Hey, lady, are you blind? A tall, lanky teenager with orange streak hair jumped from his car and faced me. You didn't even look before you pulled out. I scanned his outfit, baggy jeans that scraped the cement, a t-shirt that read, I was born to party, and an image of a cobra ready to strike tattooed on his left arm. Do you actually have a mother or were you hatched? I barked. After a lengthy conversation that would have made a juice, juicy piece for the Jerry Springer show, I drove home. Mark's car was in the driveway. I flopped a sack of groceries in the kitchen counter. What time did you get in last night? I don't know, he mumbled, pawning through the refrigerator. Well, I do. It was after one o'clock. Your curfew is 10 on a school night. So? So you're grounded. Mark rolled his eyes. I'm already grounded. Then you're double grounded. Get a life, Mom, he scoped and shoved towards his bedroom. I heard the door slam. I reached for the bottle of Tums and down a handful. What am I going to do? The following week went reasonably smoothly. smoothly. My hopes began to rise. It's just a face, I told myself. He'll snap out of it. A late night call brought an abrupt end to my expectations. Mrs. Davis, a deep voice resounded at the end of the line. Yes, is your son Mark Davis? Yes, I gripped the phone fearfully of what was coming next. A car accident, a death? Mark was found, passed out on the mall parking lot. He's been drinking. Oh no, what shall I do? I'll drive him home but he will have to appear in juvenile court for sentencing. If he has no prior record, the judge usually mandates a period of time and a treatment center or AA. I paced the floor until I heard the police car pull into the driveway. I thought of a million things to say to Mark, but when he walked in, I burst into tears. He looked terrible. 
There was vomit on his shirt and one shoe was missing. I led him to the bathroom and told him to clean up. He was in no condition to talk or listen to me. Later, when he had collapsed into bed, I knelt beside him and stroked his hair. Please, God, help us. Was all I could manage to pray. The following morning, I was up early. It had been a fitful night of sleep, and my eyes were red and puffy from crying. My mind raced for a solution. Rolling him didn't work. He was too big to spank. Talking, scolding, preaching, I tried it all. Perhaps if he spent time in jail, the thought terrorized me. A rehabilitation center? I had just begun a new job and the insurance wouldn't kick in for another three months. Mark's father had abandoned us years earlier. I knew very little about Alcoholics Anonymous except it was for drunken bombs. At least that's what I thought. How could they possibly help my son? Mark stood before the judge and heard his sentence. Alcoholics Anonymous three times a week for one year. A counselor was assigned to his case. The first meeting, I waited in the parking lot. There must be a lot of alcoholics in our town, I thought. The parking lot was jammed. A group of women, talking and laughing, walked towards the building. They seemed to be enjoying themselves. An hour later, Mark slid in next to me. How was it? Okay, we drove home in silence. The routine continued three times a week. I drove him to AA meetings. I granted him from using his car for six months. Now, as I sat in my car watching the snow blank the ground, I began to have a second thought. I saw subtle changes taking place in Mark. He kept his curfew. He stayed home more, but he was still sullen and unresponsive to my questions. One cold, icy night, I turned of event, a turn of events changed my life forever. As casual, I was sitting in the car with the motor running, trying to keep warm. A young woman knocked on my window. Why don't you come in and share a cup of coffee with us? No, thank you. I'm not an alcoholic. She laughed and laughed. Neither am I, but I do attend Elnon. Want to give it a shot? Anything was better than this freezing car, I thought. I climbed out and we hurried inside. The Elnon room was at the end of the hall. The front room was for AA. I seated myself at a long table and gracefully accepted a cup of coffee. My name is Alice, the young woman smiled. Several other women welcomed me. I noticed one woman who looked my age and also an older gentleman. The meeting opened with a serenity prayer. God, grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change the courage to change the things I can, and the wisdom to know the difference. I immediately felt more peaceful. What's going on, I wondered. The topic was detachment. I didn't have a clue what that meant, but as I listened to the group share their stories and apply one of the 12 steps to their situation, an overwhelming sense of belonging washed over me. I was not alone. I was not crazy. My doctor's words flashed before me. Don't worry about Mark. You you go to Al-Anon. From then on, I was hooked. I couldn't get information fast enough. I learned that I was an enabler. 
someone who saved the alcoholic from the consequences of his own behavior. How many times had I laid down a rule and then backed off when Mark begged for another chance? I even finished his schoolwork when he was too tired. When he said he lost his paper brought money, I bailed him out. How could I be so blind? The group assured me they all been where I was and to just keep coming back. The next thing I did was to get a sponsor, another woman who had been in the program for at least a year and who seriously applied the 12 step to her life. I asked Ellen to be my sponsor. She was close to my age and her son was an alcoholic. She agreed and we met each week over coffee. It was wonderful to have a friend who knew exactly how I felt. Ellen was not afraid to correct me if she saw me slipping back into my old ways of thinking. And oftentimes she asked for my advice. A strange reversal began to take shape. It dawned on me one morning that I wasn't obsessing about Mark's drinking. Not so long ago, that's all I thought of. Now it was me I was focusing on, and it felt wonderful. My biggest pat on the back came from Mark. One night after coming home from a football game, he paused on the way to his bedroom. Thanks for not grilling me about what I did tonight. I looked up and smiled. Ultimately, I have no control over your choices, Mark, but regardless of what you do, I will always love you. Where did that come from? Alanon, it was kicking in. Mark had a couple of slips. Through it all, I clung to my support group and my sponsor. The day came when Mark was admitted to a long-term halfway house in Minnesota. It was there he faced his demons. Tough, yes, for both of us, but we survived. Today, he's a grown man with a successful business and a loving family. Me? I am still attending Eleanor. A friend asked me why I was still a member, seeing that Mark was sober now. Because, because, I replied, it's not about Mark, it's about me. Sometimes I get the two mixed up, and I need the wisdom to know the difference. This is from Carol G. Wow. Pretty cool, huh? Chicken soup. The indestructible dignity of humankind. The best solution for little problems is to help people with big problems. I was a fledging psychiatrist resident when I was called to see a patient who required an emergency appointment. Isabel was 61. She related that she was one of the three daughters of an Episcopalian priest. Her family disowned her when she was an alcoholic at age 20. She married and when their child was three, her husband said, choose, it's the family or the booze. Isabel said, I knew I could not stop drinking and that I was not being a wife nor a mother. I gave him the divorce. Stunningly attractive and unattached, Isabel began serving high society types as an escort. She was provided with a fine apartment, furs, and all the alcohol she desired. As the alcohol eventually took its toll on her behavior and her customers dropped her 
she began serving a clientele of lesser stature. She rather quickly hit the skids, leading a disolated life in flea bag hotels. When she was fond unconscious from drinking, she would be admitted to a hospital for several days. She attended AA meetings in the hospital, but got drunk soon after discharge. During a period of 25 years, Isabel had 70 hospital admissions for drying out. At age 56, Isabel prevailed upon an attorney friend to have her committed to a state mental hospital for a year. The day she was discharged, she attended an AA meeting. She soon found a job as a caretaker for a prominent physician who was an alcoholic. I knew nothing about alcoholism. I was so intrigued by this story that I never asked Isabel what the emergency was. However, as a psychiatrist, I knew that people do not change without motivation. What could have possibly motivated Isabel to put herself into a mental hospital for a year? There was no one in the world who cared about her. Desirous of discovering the secret to her motivation, I told Isabel to come back for another appointment. I continued to see her weekly for the next 13 years in a futile attempt to learn her motivation. Isabel had told me she stayed sober by attending AA. Curious to know what treatment AA provided that surpassed anything psychiatrists could offer, I asked Isabel to take me to an open meeting. I was immediately evident to me that the 12 steps towards recovery were not specific for alcoholism, but were a formula for character improvement and spirituality that could benefit every man, woman, and child. Although not an alcoholic, I have continued my AA attendance for over 40 years. Isabel died peacefully in her sleep at age 73 without having revealed her motivation for recovery. Inasmuch as Isabel had no external advantages to be gained from sobriety, I came to the following conclusion. Within every human being, there is a nucleus of dignity and self-respect. Circumstances in life might cause this nucleus to be buried under layers of grime. However, this same, this sense of dignity pushes its way up for recognition and one day breaks through the surface. The person is then aware that I am too good for this. This behavior is beneath my dignity. At that moment, the miracle of recovery can begin. I believe it was this moment of truth that made Isabel reach out desperately for help. The only facility then available to protect her from the compulsive drink was the state hospital. She committed herself to preserve her human dignity. Isabel taught me that this nucleus of dignity and self-respect is within every person, all by it deeply buried. If a person can be made aware of it, he can recover from alcoholism and other self-destructive behaviors. This conviction led me to open the Gateway Rehabilitation Center in Pittsburgh, which has branched out in the past 30 years to provide services to some 1,800 people daily. I don't know whether anyone put a headstone on Isabel's grave, but the Gateway Rehabilitation Center is her living monument, and thousands of people owe their lives and happiness to a woman who had no reason on earth to recover, other than because every human being has an inherent sense of dignity 
which needs only to be exposed. This is from medical doctor Abraham J. Tversky, T-W-E-R-S-K-I-M-E, Tversky. Wow, what a story, huh? About alcohol. Okay, let's see if we can find another alcoholic story. We're, we're doing good here. Uh, thank you for listening in. Thank you. This is, Remember, this is soup. Okay, let's try this one. Black is a primary color. Anonymous says, a true friend never gets in your way unless you happen to be going down. Choices people make and circumstances in their life sometimes conspire to teach lessons in the most difficult way. Finding myself in prison was both the worst and the best thing that ever happened to me. Following the path of my addiction put me there, and a court-ordered drug program set me free. For two hours every day, over a period of nine months, we would meet. Weekly, we broke into small groups of six to ten and went through a process of intense intervention facility by one of the five counselors known as the primaries in the prison system. Each of us received individual treatment plans based on our entry interview. We wrote papers, read books, watched videos, did our homework, and passed our tests But what counted the most toward completing the program was class participation. The significance and depth of each person's story differ vastly. We came from all walks of life, spanned every racial, religious, and age boundary. The one thing we all had in common was that we were addicts. Whether it was alcohol, drugs, or drug dealing, addiction had become an overwhelming destructive force in our lives. I had always thought my life experience was unique, but after listening to the stories, I knew I wasn't alone. Realizing that was powerful for me, we shared things about ourselves that no one, no matter how close they were to us, would ever have known. Some of our experiences had never been said out loud for fear that doing so somehow made it too real for us to deal with. My primary was a black woman who carried herself proudly, head high and poised. When Carla spoke, her words were strong and direct. She moved around the classroom with the gratefulness as of a rose swaying to summer breeze. I was grateful in so many ways that she was my primary. I admired her. I wanted to emulate her and devote myself to helping people. Unfortunately, I was sitting on the wrong side of the desk. I was nothing but a number to the prison system, but Mrs. Davis always treated me with respect and spoke with words that allowed me to maintain my dignity. Her advice was given with the wisdom of a thousand scholars, and she could identify and sympathize with my eternal turmoil over my biracial son. Her kind, caring eyes never left my face. When I would go on and on about my problems, sometimes I look up and see tears streaming her bottom lids, ready to slide down over her high cheekbone. The next time she blinked, tissues were always a part of her death stop. Nine months later, 
It was graduation day. A person from each small group was selected for having improved the most. I glanced around the room, silently telling who had opened up the most, had shared their deepest, darkest feelings, and worked the hardest. Before I completed my mental score sheet, everyone was clapping and looking at me. My name had been called. I stood up and moved slowly to the front of the room in disbelief. When I raised my head and looked into Carla's eyes, tears were once again brimming over her bottom lids. She stretched out her arms and wrapped them around me. Her hug was as loving as if she were my own mother. She whispered in my ear, I'm so proud of you. You earned this. When the day finally came to walk out of prison, I was convinced once I was on the other side of the fence, I would never look back. I would put the part of my life completely out of my mind. It wasn't quite worked out that way. In my day-to-day living, I still had here Carla giving me advice. And when I become a little shaky in my recovery, I just think of the day and the warmth of that hug, and it gets me through one day at a time. This is from Christine L. Um, amen. And we'll stop right there. Thank you for listening. My Father's eyes do not look back in anger or forward in fear but around in awareness by James Tuber. My brother and I arrived from a New Year's Eve off Broomball on a sub-zero Minnesota night. It was shortly after midnight and we felt perfectly confident we had honored our parents' request for our New Year's Eve festives. Into the kitchen we breezed, quickly shocked, to be met by an anxious mother and a furious father. Time seemed to slow down as my brother slipped by them, both and my stepfather zero in on me. You are a lousy, no good daughter, he shouted. I was silent. You sneak around causing trouble. Are you trying to tear this family apart? Why didn't he seem to see me even though he was not now only a few feet away. All you do is manipulate, my stepfather continued. You sneak around smoking, drinking, and causing trouble. I stood open-mouthed as I listened to him describe someone who could have been my stepsister, but certainly wasn't me, the overachiever who tried to prove her worth through being the perfect child. I got excellent grades, was an officer for my church youth group, won state and national academic awards, worked more than one job to cover my own expenses, avoided drugs of all kinds and whatever else I thought might help me become the model child. The tirade continued. Though we somehow managed to work our way into the next room, closer to the stairs that would provide my escape, I no longer stood silently. I verbally fought back. I looked to my seemingly helpless mother for assistance. I defended and justified myself as well as the others I felt he mistreated in the family. My mother stepped between us for a moment, but he wasn't about to let anyone intervene. The most puzzling thing to me was that he was looking right at me into my face, yet his eyes were glazed over it, and it didn't seem he saw me standing there at all. 
None of the accusations fit. Was he shouting at the wrong person? Eventually, I escaped to my room where my mother comforted me in my heaving sobs. I had played tough in his presence, but the words deeply wounded me. Things have been dramatic with my stepfather ever since the night my mother forced me to call him dad back in elementary school because my biological father seemed rather absent. I longed to have a father around every day, but I never seemed to acquire daughter status, at least judging from our daily interactions. At that point in the traumatic New Year's Eve, I felt pretty hopeless that things would ever be healthy between us. I had about two years left under my parents' roof. I spent those years counting my pursuit of perfection. I continued sacrificing things of youth in order to be mature and responsible. But in the process, somehow I also managed to grow and somehow I never lost hope that things would be okay between my father and me, my fathers. I started to understand things like the power of forgiveness. I saw that my fathers had already hurt me but by holding on to bitterness, I was only allowing them to have further power over me. I recognized that there was nothing I could ever do to change their behavior. The only person whose behavior I could alter was me. I began to believe that if I continued to love them in healthy, balanced ways, at the very least, their mistreatment of me would be soon will be seen for how unjust it was. At the most, their hearts would begin to soften. As my junior year of high school, I spent most of my summer working at a camp in central Minnesota. As my stepdad's birthday approached, I realized I probably should get him a card since I would be seeing him on that day. I stopped by a Christian bookstore and pursued the selections, feeling pretty hopeless about the whole situation. Finally, I found a meaningful one that represented all the hopes of my heart to be my stepfather's daughter. I purchased it and in my emotional exhaustion simply signed my name rather than adding personal notes like I usually do. I felt a little like I was taking a risk. The card was emotional and expressive. If I laid it out my heart before him was and was rejected, it wasn't sure what impact that would have on our relationship, but I took the risk. On the evening of his birthday, I gathered around the table with a handful of other immediate family members who were available to eat cake. I added my card to the pile and patiently waited as my stepdad opened gifts and read cards. I froze in my seat as he quietly read my card. Then he looked up and I was shaking to my core. Those eyes, those eyes of indifference, those eyes of fury, those eyes that had looked right past me on the New Year's Eve, they saw me. They looked right into me. His eyes searched mine as he asked simply, Do you really mean that? I couldn't even speak. I just nodded. A few days later, I found a note from my stepdad on that same kitchen table. It was the only thing up to that point I could recall being written in his hand to me. It was a cheap little card that matched the wrapping paper it was purchased with. It said, surprise, and on the outside, which ended up being an ironically fitting word, inside my stepdad had written, Aaron, thanks very much for the card. Those words meant a lot to me. Love, Dad. That was it, but it represented a whole lot to me. 
It confirmed that I had suspected his eyes were telling me on that birthday evening that he would meet me halfway in our journey toward a healthy relationship. And he did. In the spirit of made of made for TV movies, our relationship changed almost overnight. My final year under my parents' roof was bewilderly, blissful at times. My parents acknowledged my achievements. They threw a small and wonderful birthday party for me. They talked with me about things that matter most, and I carried that little note from my stepdad around in my purse wherever I went. The only time I took it out for anything besides appreciating it was to include it in a college colleague I had to create for an English class about the story of my life for which I was a, it was a central feature. Had his heart finally softened, had mine, I never did figure out the key to what happened for us. But I do thank God that I have a very healthy relationship with both my fathers today. I continue to seek growth in forgiveness and in my own character, rather than trying to fix or improve others. And when I speak to my small children, I often get down on my knees and look into their eyes. Aaron H. Sounds like Elanon to me, or anger issues. Pretty good. Do unto others as you would have them do unto you. Our next story called Legacy. However long the night, the dawn will break. African proverb. My brother Kelsey once told me he could not remember a time when our mother wasn't sick. He was six years old when she was first diagnosed with breast cancer. I was 11. Neither of us could fully comprehend the seriousness of the situation. Although each time she went in for a doctor's visit, my parents would try to explain to us what he had said. We believed that she was just sick the way we sometimes got sick and that the doctors would give her medication to make her better. We live in a small farming community and people knew Beverly Trimmer. They knew her because she was an active part of our community, teaching Sunday school to four-year-olds at the Baptism Church, playing an active role in PTA, and teaching computer literacy to junior high school students. People didn't just know her, they loved her. She was passionate about life, about raising me and my brother, about teaching, about making difference, making a difference. Her warm and caring nature drew others to her and she did make a difference in the lives of more people than she will ever know. Just as my brother and I had hope, our mother got well. She was scheduled for a mastotomy and it seemed as suddenly as we had learned of the cancer, it was gone. Our family rejoiced. Unfortunately, our victory was short-lived, and by the time I was a teenager, the cancer had returned with a vengeance. Despite excruciating treatment of radiation therapy and chemo, the cancer continued to spread. My mother would never complain. She went on about life as nothing was wrong. She continued to teach in addition to maintaining our household and caring for me. Kelsey and my dad, Eddie, she fought this cancer with every ounce of her being, but to no prevail. The only way we could tell how much pain she was in was by looking at her face. Her frown, 
lines deepened and her smiles were forced. Looking back, I am not amazed that she could even smile at all. Before long, Mrs. Trimmer was replaced by a substitute teacher at the high school. She no longer had the strength to teach her computer class. Her students missed her terribly, and although I, I was a high school student by this time, younger children asked me about her all the time. How is Mr. Trimmer feeling? They would ask. When she, when will she be back at school? I would always tell them she was feeling better, and she missed them too, and that she would be back as soon as she could. The truth was, she would never be back. Things took a drastic turn on the home front, too. My mother, the loving, sacrificed caregiver, was now relying on us to take care of her. My father quit his job in order to stay at home and take care of my mother full-time. My grandmother's were at a house daily, helping to bathe and dress my mother. And I ate, and my brother also did what we could help. Our family put together to take care of my mother, who had told my father that she wished to die in her home. On February 13, 1989, the cancer granted her wish. I was 18 years old, a freshman in college, and a motherless daughter. My mother's death was a tremendous obstacle for me to face. As a young adult trying to find my place in the world, I just lost my greatest human source of love, comfort, and encouragement. With the realization that my mother wouldn't be there to attend my college graduation, my wedding, the birth of my children, just to mention the biggies, came the realization that I had to make some choices. I didn't make all of those choices right away. Some I may not have even made consciously. I began by making the choices not to let my emotions prevent me from graduating from college because my mother had been so passionate about education. I knew it would be a great disappointment to her if I allowed my grief to stand in the way of my success. I earned a BS degree in biology and just three years graduated with honors from Wayland Baptist University. I made a decision not to allow myself to be victimized by the loss of my mother. I learned quickly that being angry or questioning God left me feeling emptier than ever. So I choose to instead having unwavering faith in Him and trust in His greater purpose. Once I made the choice, it opened up all kinds of opportunities for me to recover from death of my mother. The first thing I did after putting my faith in God was starting start talking about Beverly Trimmer, my mother. I made a decision that I wasn't going to forget about her and I wasn't to going to let other people forget her. Either I chose to help her live on by honoring her memory through sharing details in her, of her life with others, even those who never knew her. As my children, who are now two and three years old, grow older, they will know their grandmother. They will hear stories and see pictures, and they will learn what a wonderful person their grandmother was. The next thing I did was embrace the good things that had evolved from this tragedy. My father, who I had gained a tremendous amount of respect for as I watched him care for his dying wife, was blessed with yet another loving, compassionate, and giving spouse. My stepmother, Jackie, joined a grieving family and stood by not only my father, but by me and my brother as well as we worked through our loss, the adjustments that had to be 
made and the evolution of a new family unit, I grew to love, admire, and respect Jackie instead of resenting her. I have found her in her a trusted friend, advisor, and one of my greatest source of encouragement. She is not only my mother's replacement, and she has never tried to be. She is not my mother's replacement. She holds a different place in my heart and is right next to my mother's. Perhaps the greatest good of all that has come from the loss of my mother have been the new lives that would have never been had she survived. My dad and Jackie have two children of their own, Lindsay and Mackenzie, my half-sisters. I love them immensely and they help me to accept the fact that some people have to leave this world in order for others to enter it. I am grateful that I have them in my life and they are constant reminders that God does indeed have a divine plan. There is good to be found in the worst of situations if only we can gather the strength to look for it. There is good to be found in the worst of situations if only we can gather the strength to look look for it. Last of all, I find that reaching out to others is a great source of healing to me for me whether it is helping someone financially providing emotional support for someone else who has experienced loss contributing to cancer research or whatever the opportunity may be it helps me put my own loss into perspective there are others out there who suffer many of them much more than I have to seize the unique opportunity to be a source of comfort to them or make a difference in some way is monumental in the constant healing process I go through daily. It is up to each of us to determine how we are going to react. In fact, how we are going to recover from adversity or tragedy in our lives. It is easy to fall victim to the tragedy or loss yourself. It is easy to use an excuse for personal failure emotional problems and social problems however i found that it is easier to take control over your perspective to the loss i choose to honor my mother's memory by being the person she raised me to be the person she invested her life in i am now a wife and a mother and i am also her legacy i strive to be the best person i can be a daughter who would be proud of. Letitia T. Meeks. Wonderful, wonderful, wonderful. bottoms and dancing toes the close of the front door ended the abuse Ethel Barrymore said you grow up the day you have your first real laugh at yourself the close of the front door ended the abuse I watched my husband, once my best friend, and the father of my children walk out of our lives. Tears of relief and 
and a trickle of regret empty down my cheeks. It's okay, I'll sleep with you tonight, my eight-year-old son Carl wrapped his arms around my waist and offered comfort. I looked down into his innocent and held, held on tightly. The October wind whistled down the chimney and rattled the window panes. Outside leaves tumbled down the quiet street. Inside, I tumbled to the couch and pondered my new life and future. We settled in our family of four, and soon my kids fantasized about Halloween. I quickly made costumes, casting a crew of motley pirates. Unhand the treasure or die, Carl said, waving his rubber sword and swatting his younger brother on the backside. Challenged, Grant drew his plastic savior from his buccaneer belt. He oversized pants slipped down and he tugged one hand for the sagging drawers. I looked for a safety pin. Entrance in a dance. Erin flipped her flimsy nylon skirt, twirled in circles, and chanted in kindergarten rhymes, I'm a wrench. Tango in his costume, Grant toppled to the floor, screaming in the highest soprano known only to three-year-olds as Carl's foot planted on Grant's chest. Beloved, take that. The dogs howl, chaos rain. I covered my ears and shouted, Mutiny! Mutiny! I laughed with them, but behind the mask, I worried about the realities. I had no job and no credit cards. My options limited for now. I smiled and snapped a picture of my rowdy crew amidst life's challenges. One constant remained. I was still a mom. Let go, I said, as I gathered glow sticks and pillowcases to hoard the waiting treasures. A child kissed our cheeks as we rang doorbells and collected fortunes of sugar. Overhead rain threatened. Onward we trudged, our bounty mounting with each trick-or-treat. With the sidewalk empty of masked children and only a few glow sticks glimmering in the distance, we headed home. The first rain drops fell as I bent down and blew out the candle in the jack-o'-lantern. A trail of smoke snaked out of the carved ice and crooked mouth. A trickle of juice dripped down the steps. Carl laughed and said, Jack smoking and peeing. Grant covered his mouth and snickered. I left Jack to pit on the porch and unlock the front door. Kids flopped on the floor, turned pillowcases upside down, and dove into the assortment of miniature treats. Let's clean up first, I said. Into the bathroom we marched, costumes dropped to the floor besides the three pair of shoes, soap, a friendly companion. I washed the makeup off Aaron's sheet as the boys stood like soldiers at the toilet, a tight formation of side-by-side spouts. A family in unions, unison. I scrub, she squirm, they flushed. Start of the boys jumped back as water flowed over the brim and flooded the floor. Bare bottom, they ran out of the bathroom as the water nipped at their naked dancing toes. I frantically jingled the, the handle and commanded the toilet to stop. No, I pleaded, grasping for the plunger and plunging repeatedly. I flushed again, defeated, the water overflowed and crept between my toes. Don't worry, I told the kids, silently. I assessed the situation. For little boys, a backyard bush was a welcome target, but what of the girls? 
My neighborhood gone on vacation. I refused to resort to door-to-door solicitation for bathroom privileges. I decided we used the bathroom at the grocery store. For a couple of days, the plan worked. Boys and dogs peed in the backyard. The ladies drove to the corner store, greeted by suspicious glances from the shirkers. Guilt bore a nasty wound, and I felt obligated to buy something in exchange for the double-ply tissue and a tidy bowl, plush. Low on funds, we conceded to one ply and to squat in a spot. Desperate for money, we empty change bottles and scrounge for dollars. The children counted pennies and rolled coins. Urine spots burned the chamomile leaves. My fingers flipped the yellow pages for a plumber a gardener could wait. Every plumber I contacted with book or wanted money, a lot of green up front. Slamming down the receiver, I snarl. Bet your kids aren't peeing in the rain. While rain cascades down the front of gutters, my tears drop into the kitchen table. Discouraged, I cradle my head between my hands and mumble. We tried. We're tired of piddling in a pot. I recounted the rows of coins so short lost in my dilemma. I heard footsteps on the linoleum. Lifting my head, I turned to my oldest son. It be all right, Carl assured me with a supportive smile. Bundling in a black jacket, Carl stood by my chair, a decision seal in his freckled face. Thin gloves covered his hands, a red and blue knit hat his curly head. Hid, hid his curly hair. Where are you going? I pointed to the rake in his grip. I'm going to help. Carl, no, I objected, but he ran out the door before I could stop him. Boys, I sighed and turned to search for my plumber in shiny armor. Sorry, later, not tonight. Get weary. Wearily, I dial one more time. A burly voice answered, calling slowly. I started to go through my saga. A gust of wind whipped around my ankles as the front door opened and shut. Carl tore into the kitchen, muddy wet and wind blowing, his shoes dripping puddles on the floor. Just a moment, I asked the waiting voice on the other end. Grinning proudly, he put a crumbled one dollar bill in my hand. Where'd you get this? I stared at the soggy dollar. Mr. Ballard hired me to rake his lawn. He dropped his hat on the table and ripped open the snap of his jacket. I traced the curve of his cheeks, chilled and bluish. Pictures reeled in my hand. I envisioned my son running porch to porch, knocking on doors and asking to rake leaves in the pouring rain. I could only imagine the reactions. How many houses did you go to? Five, his face being brighter than the Halloween pumpkin. But I only needed one. He paid me a whole dollar. Now we can get the toilet fixed. <laughs> Hugging my son tightly, his rain-saturated jacket soaked into my shirt. I held his hands in mine and realized they weren't so small after all. Lady, lady, I heard a muffled call. I'm here. I struggled to find my voice. Cash only, he growled. No problem. I unfolded the dollar, added George to the toilet fund, and hung up the phone. Guess what, I said. A man's coming to fix the toilet. A smile burst across his face. I bent down, squeezed his shoulder, and said, Guess what else? 
His eyes broadened with curiosity. Your mom's a very rich woman, the richest of all. I couple his hand in mine and we jump in the puddles, survivors of the storm. Cynthia Boris. My, 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 what a story. When we were kids, my mom had this, um, this valve that just wouldn't hold the hot water and we buckets and buckets of hot water and and she was trying to close the valve and having a lot of trouble with the valve and you mess with it and the valve from hell and uh, I went out and I I got some newspapers from the neighborhood liquor store and I proceeded to sell it I got one dollar I went to the hardware store and saw a valve and it cost a dollar. I gave the guy the dollar I took the valve home, but I didn't have no way to put it on or install it. And so I took the valve back to the guy, got my dollar back, and I went to go buy candy before I was a kid. I was just a kid. I don't know, nine years old. About the same age as that kid. I tried. I always thought about my, I should have asked the neighbors that drank beer in the garage. They would have, they would have traded for me. But I had older sisters, so I didn't dare mess with them. All right, God bless you. Thank you for listening. Faces of Heroes. Tell me who you live with and I will tell you who you are. Spanish proverb. The truth is, cancer affects us all. In fact, there are a few lives that have not been visited in one form or another by the horrifying specter of this disease. Many have sat by the bedside of a neighbor or a child or a parent struggling with the illness. We have talked to misty-eyed co-workers about their prognosis and treatments. There are old friends we have lost to cancer and new friends we have made during the battle. When my wife was diagnosed with breast cancer in October 2002, we were typically middle-life couple raising respectable kids in the suburbs, paying off a mortgage, working our jobs with an equal mix of enjoyment and stress. But the event of cancer changed all that. Cancer changed us, or I should say survival changed us, for it was the recovery, the struggle against the unseen adversity that made our good marriage even stronger, enabled us to reevaluate our goals and gave us new opportunities to help others. When my wife called first with the news, her voice stretching out to me over the telephone 8,000 miles away, I could scarcely believe the words. I have cancer, she said softly. I have cancer. Sitting alone by the phone in Indianapolis that evening, I felt my spirit winning its way to my wife's side as she sobbed in Orlando. It will be all right, I tried to assure her. Don't worry. I love you, she told me. I want to come home. I love you too, I said. A few hours later, after a quick flight back to Indy, we embraced and wept together, but our journey was just beginning. Consultations follow, tests, books, and magazines by the stack. Meetings with specialists and surgeons, our minds swam in a boiling sea of information and uncertainty. There were other discussions and decisions to be made. Eventually, my wife opted for a mastectomy. The, the dive was cast, but 
but thankfully we emerge whole on the other side of the experience. We learn much about ourselves and about each other. Everything we experience with cancer has only served to make us stronger people and more compassionate and caring. I think of these things whenever I meet someone who is recovering from an illness or from some dreaded disease of the heart or mind, from alcoholism, drug addiction, or abuse. These experiences can scar us, but they cannot destroy our spirits, not if we refuse to allow it. Let me read that last paragraph again before this one. But thankfully, we emerge whole on the other side of this experience. We learn much about ourselves and about each other. Everything we experience with the disease has only served to make us stronger people and more compassionate and caring. Walking through the disease experience with my life, with my wife, I learned that it takes great courage to believe that we can overcome. There is a certain bravery in facing up to our own weaknesses, to our own mortality, to all the possibilities that might be visited upon us. Anyone who has survived an illness, who has recovered from an addiction, is living testimony to the resilience of the human spirit, to the courageous hope that resides within us. Now, seeing the people around me through new eyes, I realize that there are many survivors in this life. There are those who have survived a childhood in the presence of an alcoholic parent, who have gone on to live loving and productive lives. There are those who have survived drug addictions or depression or child abuse, who have managed their pain in such a way that they are able to leave the suffering behind them and then journey on day by day into the bright, welcoming embrace of family and friendships. There are others who have survived defeat, illness, even the face of death, and endured through faith and hope in God. These heroes are with us every day, sitting beside us at work, in the classroom, in the cafeteria, or in the intimacy of the living room. We may not see them as such, but their lives are much bigger because they have walked through the valley of pain and emerged whole on the other side. There is so much truth here. We can encounter the heroic in so many of the people who bless our lives. All we have to do is look closely, and if we do, we are bound to meet a hero or two. That's what I learned. After my wife's recovery from breast cancer, I came to realize that I was a survivor too. Not in the same fashion perhaps, but I had stood by my wife's side, held her hand, and made that part of her healing possible. We had survived the threat of cancer together. And in the end, that's what life is all about. Life is taking a stand with someone, sitting beside a friend, talking to a neighbor, encouraging the defeat, teaching the young, loving through the hardships of the journey of life, teaching the young, loving through the hardships of the journey, and in the simple touch of a hand or a warm embrace, we are healing each other too, one percent of time. This is from Todd O. Very good, very good, very good. I'm Fernando. I am in recovery. What a beautiful um, writing this was. Um, I just want to add that there are a lot of help, Dr. Berg, a lot of doctors on YouTube. 
that tells us what what foods to eat, preventive maintenance like uh, cancer thrives on sugar, cancer needs blood vessels to uh, to stay alive, uh, vegetables. Would you believe green salads? Uh, miraculously kill off their connections and put some at bay. Um, so there's a lot we can do. It surprises me so much that so many people just continue to eat uh, flour and sugar and and put their hope and their faith in the doctor. You get penalized for that. You have to take responsibility make a stand with God on your side. For me, it's my higher power of Jesus. And we use his words to combat the problems. I have to believe that his words, these words, I do believe them. And they effectively, uh, I come out on the other side. I choose not to be lazy. I choose to to do the hard work. Get up at 2 or 3 in the morning and start doing some reading. I choose to fight with my higher power against the onslaught of the enemy and the disease. Amen. Thank you for listening. Dying battery and the recovering codependent. It is December 1985 and I drive a diesel automobile. Diesels are notorious for slow starts in cold weathers, and so a dying battery has become a regular part of my daily life. Like a good scout, I have been prepared. Before my wife Dee Dee leaves for work each morning, I go out and jump start my car using my cables and her battery. I just hook the two up and it's easy as pie, routine, normal, at least it had been until this morning. This morning Dee Dee confronted me. She had consulted an expert, an objective third party, she informed me solemnly. And you're not going to, to like what I have to say, she continued. Silence followed as we sat there, knee to knee, eye to eye. What is it, I asked, already scared, already angry. You see, lately, Didi had been asking questions such as, is it harmful to my battery to be used so often to jumpstart your car? Of course, I told her, that was ridiculous. I told her that she needed to learn to give. Yesterday, she said she was thinking of asking a mechanic her question. I was shocked and told her, so, you are making this a relationship issue? Don't you trust me? So there we sat, me angry just from hearing her confronted tone. Didi was direct and her position was well thought out. The mechanic had told her that it was not good for her battery to be used so often to start my car. He told her that if I continue, we would soon be in the market for two new batteries. She said that she believed that I truly had to had not known this before, but in light of this new and more reliable information, she wanted me to responsible for taking my car in for the necessary repairs. Didi wasn't going to stand by and watch her battery die. I was furious. 
I cannot believe this. You're already making this into a relationship issue. I'm not saying that, Tom, she began. Yes, you are. You act like I'm trying to treat you like a doormat, like I'm abusing you in some way. I was exaggerating. I was distracting, trying to get the focus back on her where it belonged. Didi left for work. I stood. I thought of my alternatives. I thought of friends I could call on to come over and help me jumpstart my car. A different friend every day. How exhausting. I thought of how guilty I would feel if I now use one friend regularly for this in light of the new information Didi had presented me about the potential drain to my friend's battery. I thought of making a point each night of getting out of bed every two hours or so, going out in the cold night to start my car in order to keep the battery charged. Didi would surely feel sorry for me and then and insist that I use her car to start mine. But with the new information, I would feel guilty. Damn, damn. And then it occurred to me, one of those rare moments of true inspiration, the proverbial light bulb went on. By George, I had it. I would make time to take my car to the shop for repairs. I would take responsibility for my car. I would make it a top priority. I felt absolutely brilliant. Acting on my new plan, I took the car in for service. Within an hour, a brand new battery had been installed. And I was on my way. Maybe Didi is not as ridiculous as I have thought. I thought as I drove home that evening, excited to tell her that getting a new battery isn't really such a big deal. The episode with my car battery was a metaphor for our life at that time. The recovering codependent woman in a relationship with an actively addicted man in January 1986 with the same firmness described in the dying battery episode, Didi confronted me about my alcoholism six months sober herself. She said, you're drunk, you'll need to do something about that if you want our relationship to last. I knew just what she meant. I didn't like it, but I knew. So I began recovery from alcoholism. I have not had a drink since that January evening, and today we are two fully we are two fully charged batteries, one day at a time, thanks Didi. Someone told me the other day that the abstinence from addictive behavior is really just the positive application of procrastination. I like that. Lying in bed that night before my 18th anniversary with abstinence, I said to Didi, Now let me see if I remember this correctly. 18 years ago, you told me in no uncertain terms that I should not have another drink for 18 years. Is that right? She laughed. No, you are not remembering that correctly. Okay, just checking, I said. Tom R. Okay, Tommy. And our next story is called Legacies Left Behind. Frederick Douglass said, It is easier to build strong children than to repair broken men. As a child growing up, fear was a way of life. Then came the sadness and pain. The loneliness was pervasive. 
Living in a small logging community of fewer than 500 people in the Pacific Northwest, drinking and even more so alcoholism was a way of life. My parents' tavern was the hub of the community for most. Certainly drinking was central to my family because my father was an alcoholic. My parents taught me to be grateful for what I had, a house, food, and parents who cared. And I was, and I am grateful. But what I remember most was the confusion as to why my father behaved as he did and the chronic fear he would die in a wreck. He was forever taken off in the car with a half case of beer and me next to him. I thought if I went with him, he might come home earlier. Why did I want him home? It was all such a fantasy, so maybe he would relieve my mom from work so she could fix dinner for us. Or even be home at night before we went to bed, maybe because I thought my brother and sister would be less upset. My brother was terminally ill. By age nine, he couldn't walk. He crawled, and then soon he went into a wheelchair. At 17, he died. But then my father was becoming quite scary. He was losing any of the control he had been trying to maintain. Today, I believe he was having a psychic episode caused by alcoholism. At this time in his alcoholism, he became quite violent. The fear of him killing my mother or some combination of my mother, my sister, or me became paramount. Who was this man who I have loved? I knew once loved all of us. Why and how could he do this to us? My father, having grown up in Appalachian poverty, wanted so much for me to go to college. A big feast at this time for a little girl from his, this town. I wanted to live out his dream. It gave me a value to him. So I focused hard in school and I told myself what he told me. You, you gotta go to college. The only way I knew that could happen was to beat the odds of another social dynamic. And that meant not getting pregnant. With those two goals, school and not getting pregnant, I ventured forth underneath a cloud of fear, trying not to rock the boat any more than it was already rolling. Having leaned or learned so much about how to survive by taking charge, initiating and being goal-oriented, I became a successful student and leader with screaming on the inside as my family was being torn apart by addiction. With my brother's death and my family inability to cope, the alcoholism weighed heavily on our grief. Funny how those who learn not to speak the truth in the, of their lives can ultimately find voices in other arenas. As I went out to college, my parents divorced, but then I was numb. I became invisible in a large college campus. The nightmares began and persisted for many years. I had visions of watching my father kill himself or us, visions of not being able to save my brothers from tidal waves. I was unable to wear turtleneck because of the sensation of being choked. I would spend my waking hours driven and goal-focused, anything to keep me busy and distract myself from feeling incredible pain. God's gift to me was sending me on a journal that led me to my first job as a social worker in an alcoholism treatment program. God's gift to me was sending me on a journey that led me to my first job. I was nothing 
I knew nothing about treatment, but what I did know is that most addicts were people like my dad, good people overcome by something outside of their control. I had spent my life surrounded by good people whose lives had gone very awry due to their addictions. I was asked to develop a family program, but I neglected to ask what they meant by family. I invited the children to the alcoholics to the treatment program. Yet at the same time, the mid-late 70s, there was no concept of adult children and the word of codependency did not yet exist. I wasn't sure what to do with all those these kids, young or adult. But common sense told me that if they lived with addiction, they had the right to understand it. And intuitively, I knew group would help them lessen their profound sense of being unique in their pain, that they were not alone in their experience. I began to see that the pain of human experience is universal and that with a safe setting and a language throughout which we talk about one's experience, people could begin to speak their truth to own their reality. They could ultimately come to put the past behind, to let go of painful family scripts, and be accountable for their own choices. To this day, I maintain a belief I internalized at a young age. No one deserves to live as we had. Not me, my brother, sister, mother, or my father. No one deserves to live a life of fear, pain, and shame. Of that, I was in it and am passionate. Through this process, I found my way to a self-help group. It was not long before both my personal recovery and my professional direction began to unfold. Today, I am honored to carry this message of healing and recovery throughout the world. I have taken the experiences of growing up in an isolated, tough little community where alcoholism was a way of life and became part of the worldwide community of healing and recovery. I no longer live in fear, confusion, or pain. Secrets and shame are a part of my past. I allow myself to experience what I'm feeling when I feel it and I trust my own perceptions. I have tapped into a fun-loving person within me. I can ask for help. I don't need to be regularly self-sufficient. I find joy in the present, and I surround myself with people who respect and treat me well. In some ways, my recovery is summarized with two beautiful pieces of art in my home, with messages that say, you deserve to no longer live your life in fear, and... Does the pain ever go away? Yes. Beautiful, beautiful story from by Claudia Black. From the heart of a joyous child. Dear mommy and daddy. I write this letter to you in hopes that you will consider your approach to pairing me before I arrive. I am a joyous child. I thrive on love and respect, order and consistency. When I arrive, I will seem very small to you, even though I don't look like an adult. Please understand that I am a human being. Even though I will not speak words to you, 
I will know you with my heart. I will feel all your feelings, absorb your thoughts, and I will come to know you more than you may know yourself. Do not mis mis do not be misled by my silence. I am open, growing, and learning more rapidly than you can imagine. I will make imprints of all that I see, so please give me beauty to rest my eyes upon. I will record all that I hear, so please give me sweet music and language that tells me how much I love, I am loved. Give me silence to rest my ears. I will absorb all that I feel, so please wrap our life in love. I am waiting patiently to be with you. I am so happy to have the opportunity to be alive. Maybe when you see me, you will remember how precious life is too. Your joyous child. By Donna M. To understand your parents' love, you must raise children yourself. Chinese proverb. Chicken soup for the soul. This is called a cup of chicken soup. The bigger, the better. Karen and I were the proud parents of the day at our son's, Michael's kindergarten class. We had fun as he turned us around his classroom and introduced us to all his friends. We joined in for cut and paste and sewing and spent the better day of the morning in the sandbox. It was a riot. Circle up, called the teacher. It's story time. Not wanting to look out of place, Karen and I circled up with the rest of our new buddies. After finishing the story entitled Big, the teacher asked this enthusiastic group, What makes you feel big? Bugs make me feel big, yelled one young student. Ants hollered another. Mosquitoes called out one more. The teacher, trying to bring some order back to the class, started calling on the children with their hands up. Point to one little girl, the teacher said, Yes, dear, what makes you feel big? My mommy, she was the reply. How does your mommy make you feel big? Quizzed the teacher. That's easy, said the child. When she hugs me and says I love you, Jessica. This is my favorite place inside a hug. By Barry S. He's not my stepfather. My mother died when I was eight years old. It was very sad for everyone. Six months later, my father met Kathy. She had two kids, Megan and Griffin. I loved them from the very first time I saw them. I didn't realize how much, though. A year and a half later, my father married Kathy. They were very much in love. At the wedding, I realized how much I loved Megan and Griffin. From then on, until we found a new house big enough for our new family, we quit, kept switching back and forth between our houses and Kathy's house as we were merging our two families. One night we were at Kathy's and we were lining up to give Kathy kisses. Griffin was last in line. After he kissed Kathy, she said, 
Griff, give your stepfather a kiss. And Griffin very angrily said, He's not my stepfather. He's my dad. Jane Kelly. The most lasting honors of all are those which your own family bestows on you. O A. Batista. Batista. Our next story is called Two for the Price of One. Again by Barry Spiltshuk. Barry S. Where's Jamie? screamed my cousin Leanne. Oh my God, where is Janie? I thought as I was standing in the pool of my parents' house. The question about my five-year-old son's momentary disappearance sent shockwaves through my body. The entire pool had a safety ledge around the inside of it and gently slopes to a deep end of only four feet. It was very common for us to let the younger children splash their afternoons away in Grandma's pool while we stood beside them and got totally soaked with their enthusiasm on the water. On that scary afternoon, when Leanne yelled, it seems that James had been walking near the safety ledge and slid down into the deeper part. We had taken our eyes off of him for only a split second, and then he was gone. I quickly spotted him and reached down to pull him up. As I yanked him up, he came up kicking and screaming, crying and fearfully and yelling that he wanted to get out. My guilt wanted to take him out and grant him his wish, but my fatherly instincts told me to stay in the pool with him. Both of us were shaking as I talked to him and reassured him that water can be scary and we must respect it. I held him close as we gently walked around the pool. After a couple of minutes, he said he wasn't afraid anymore and he started to splash around again. I was feeling guilty and sorry for myself for being such a bad father. Good fathers don't let their sons almost drown, I was telling myself. Just at the height of my personal pity party, Leanne walked by and said, you're a terrific dad, and I really admire the way you handle that. He will never be afraid of the water again. Leanne saved two lives that day. She saved my son's life when she yelled, Where's Jamie? And she saved my life as a father. She took my, me from self-pity to pride with her nurturing comment. It's amazing what can happen when you look at yourself through someone else's eye. Barry Spilkman. The next story is called In the Eye of the Beholder. This one is taken from Tammy Litchfield Najar, exerted from the woman's world. One night, my eight-year-old son, Zachariah, and I were scanning the TV listening for something to watch. Ooh, there's a beauty contest on, I said. Zachariah asked me what a beauty contest was. And I explained that it was a contest to show the most beautiful woman in the world. Then my son thrilled me by asking, with complete sincerity, Why aren't you in the contest, Mommy? Okay, this is our last story. It's called My Grown-Up Son. 
My hands were busy through the day. I didn't have much time to play. The little games you asked me to, I didn't have much time for you. I wash your clothes, I sew and cook, but when you bring your picture book and ask me to place to share your fun, I say a little later, son. I tuck you in all safe at night and hear your prayers turn out the lights, then tiptoe softly to the door. I wish I stay a minute more, for life is short, the years rush past. A little boy grows up so fast, no longer is he at your side, his precious secrets to confide. The pictures book are put away, there are no longer games to play, no good night kisses, no prayers to hear, that all belongs to yesteryear. My hands, once busy, now are still, the days are long and hard to fill, I wish I could go back, do the little things you asked me to do. Author Unknown.